1927, studio head Louis B. Mayer had a dream to unite the five branches of the film industry. Actors, directors, producers, technicians, and writers. His dream was to stop them all from unionizing so that he could continue to reap the rewards of their hard work and live the life he had become accustomed to. So he summoned 36 of the most prestigious names of the time to a banquet and explained his plans. And after collecting $100 from each of them, they formed the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I found that the best way to handle filmmakers was to hang medals all over them. If I got them cups and awards, they'd kill to produce what I wanted, old Louis B. said. And on May 16th, 1929 at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel in Los Angeles, the first Academy Awards was held. And today, many, many years later, Moronic Logic is proud to present Golden Boy. Welcome to the first ever Academy Awards from 1929. And the nominees tonight are Chang, A Drama of the Wilderness by Cooper and Shudashev, The Crowd by King Beetle, Sunrise by F.W. Murnau, The Jazz Singer by Alan Crossland, The Circus by Charlie Chaplin, The Wreck by Lewis Milestone, Seventh Heaven by Frank Morzaggio, and Wings by William A. Wellman. Welcome, welcome to the first Academy Awards from 1929 and episode one of Golden Boy, a, an Academy Awards podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Kenny Cahoon. You might know me from my Hitchcock podcast, uh, Presenting Alfred Hitchcock, which is on YouTube and slowly to be on all of your Spotify uh, podcast services as the Hitchcock Challenge. That show, we break down uh, Alfred Hitchcock movies chronologically. We do everything on the show chronologically from the beginning. And we get into super deep dives. We do research. We read the books about these uh, people involved in making these movies. It's a ton, a ton of work. And uh, that's why those episodes are very slow to come out. Uh, They're labors of love. This show is a labor of love. However, it will not be as heavily researched as that show. We're not going to break these movies down for you scene by scene. We might get into a couple of interesting tidbits about them, but primarily this show is about bringing these movies back, looking at them through a modern lens and deciding, are these movies any good? Are they worth watching? Are some of these movies should be left in the past? Every episode will have a rotating co-host. I'm going to force one of my friends, family, experts uh one fan from the hitchcock show to watch all of these movies from a given year the nominees for best picture uh and decide which one should have won or which one they like the best basically i would like to thank my executive producer uh jessa goldstein on this show who has helped in all of the preparation i've had to do uh in getting this material and research together i'd like to thank sam and lance my hitchcock cohorts and i would like to introduce my first guest tonight on golden boy 
Uh, he is someone that I might know from having worked together with on past theatrical productions, both writing and directing, and a little bit of acting. And he is someone that the people of New York and New Jersey might know as radio host Bucci from WFMU. He is also a very popular, uh, it's a very popular show in my household, and you can hear it worldwide. I will have links in the description down below. I'll let him tell you a little bit about it. My first guest tonight, Cyrus Letty. Hey, Kenny, how you doing? Hey, really, what's up, really man? Great to be here. Are you excited to do this? Yeah, yeah. I just want to take a little bit of issue with your introduction. Uh, you said you might know me from such productions as we've done before, but we definitely know each other, right? Well, I didn't, I was getting my notes together for the show and I did not have how I know you uh, written <laughs> down anywhere. Are you going to write down how you know me to remember that you know me? Yeah, well, everything I read, everything I'm saying is from a note right now. There's literally cards all over the place. So, Ah, yes, your serial killer room. Yes, yes, that's the room. If you could see the other side of this camera. <laughs> uh, really, anyway, I'm really glad to be here, man. This is really exciting. Um, yeah, I just described Bucci a little bit. Do you want to just kind of, for people listening, explain what that show is and kind of uh, where they can go to hear it? Sure. Um, so it's a talk radio station. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a talk radio show. It's a music station primarily. It's a freeform radio station, WFMU. And so the DJs have complete control over their uh, content. And my show is Tuesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern time. And I, like I said, I do a, a talk show, take calls, and kind of we engage in uh, kind of topics that are destined to broaden the minds of the listeners and everyone listening, in fact. Uh, it's I wrote called... down that you ask avant-garde questions. Does that sound uh, kind of... I don't of... know about avant-garde, but I try to, I try to uh, do topics that kind of engage audiences. And I try to like to do... Um, I like to tackle, let's say stupid topics intelligently and intelligent topics stupidly and you succeed yeah. admirably in uh yeah yeah well thank you i think um yeah and it's a comedy show it's not too serious but it's um yeah check it out and the wfmu in general is a fantastic radio station and whatever your musical preference you're bound to find a show that uh lines up with that Awesome. I'm glad that you mentioned that it's a comedy show, so we can all expect that, that obviously your commentary tonight will be hilarious. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about that. Speaking of uh, tonight, uh, tonight, these eight movies, had you seen any of them previous to, to no. this last month where you had to watch them all? No, I have not. I did not see anything, which is kind of the great one of the great things about this project, because these are debt movies that I would definitely never watch and i i just you know and, and silent movies in general you know are something that i find hard to get into um but yeah i really like the experiences of at least watching these things and now i can say that i've seen all the movies that were nominated for an oscar in 1929 yeah i think starting the hitchcock 
podcast that we were doing, it was the silent movies were definitely really hard to get into. And there's a certain language and rhythm to them that is hard to just jump into one. And and so especially like some of these movies like The Racket, where you're you're it's asking a lot out of a modern audience, I think, to follow the story. Um, yeah, yeah, that movie in particular was pretty confusing. If yeah, I remember. I felt I definitely felt so, and that's having watched a bunch of silence at this point. Sure. But so we're gonna let me let me first break down these eight movies that we're gonna be talking about and why we're doing eight and not three. So most of these podcasts, and there are a lot of great Academy Award podcasts that I've been listening to in the last couple of weeks to uh, prepare myself mentally for this. And I recommend I'll actually put a couple of recommendations that I listen to again down below in the description of this video because they do great work. But one thing most of them do is they only talk about the three movies that were nominated for Outstanding Picture. And those three movies from 1929 were Seventh Heaven by Frank Borzage. 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 The Racket by Lewis Milestone and Wings by William A. Wellman. So those three movies were the original Outstanding Picture selection. Now, the first Academy Awards had this interesting, they were making this stuff up on the fly. So they had two best picture categories. They had the outstanding category, and they also had one for artistic and unique pictures. For that, they had Chang, A Drama of the Wilderness, by two directors, Marion Cooper and Ernest Shodashak. They had The Crowd by King Vidor, and they had Sunrise by F.W. Murnau. Sunrise won that unique and artistic picture, but... Later on, they went back and decided that the Wings win for Best Outstanding Picture was the one that counts, I guess. Uh, the other two movies I've added into this list are The Jazz Singer, which The Jazz Singer, they considered ineligible to run for any Best Picture because it was the first movie that had synchronized sound. So they felt like this thing's just going to, it's not a fair competition. So they just gave it an Oscar. They got a special award uh, for the, uh, what was it? For producing, just for producing the jazz singer and for the technical achievement. And the other one is The Circus, which again, was just given by Charlie Chaplin, which was again, just given a special award for writing, acting, directing, and producing The Circus. He was originally nominated for all of those categories and they just felt he would sweep them all uh, being Charlie Chaplin. So they just decided to give him an award. So those eight movies, we are, Cyrus and I are taking together and we're going to look at them all and decide which of those eight is the best, actual best picture from 1929. And you made a list, right? A list of what? Okay. Oh, yeah, the movies in the yeah, I ranked all the mo movies and it's going to be a very, I'm, I'm really interested to see how our um, rankings line up. Um, no, I feel like I can't even really get, I feel like if, if it's, my feeling was four of these movies, I did not like one bit. And if really? you, four of them, wow. Not one bit. And four of them I felt were, uh, there's, there's merits to them all. Well, I liked one extremely, uh, period. I really, I like one very, very much. And the rest of them. Um, I liked to some extent or, and then there was a few that I, I really didn't care for at all. Well, the other thing I should mention too, is a lot of these films are probably not in the exact form they would have been in, in the 1920s. 
What do you mean by that? Wings did had a restoration at some point in in recent times where depending on what sound, like the soundtracks are all going to be different on some of these, like wings, they redid the soundtrack where it had sound effects. So do you remember sound effects when you watched wings? Like, do you remember like, no, I don't think I don't think the version I saw had sound effects. Yeah. I don't think mine did either, but they did apparently have, there is a soundtrack out there with sound effects in it. With the circus Chaplin composed a new soundtrack in like 1967. Right. Yeah, and it had him singing that song at the, over the credits, uh, Swing Little Girl, which um, I don't care for Charlie Chaplin's singing voice. Um, it's very uh, melodramatic, and it's got that kind of tenor that kind of grates on me. Um, and also just like him adding another kind of credit for himself to that movie. Uh, well, it, that, that movie has some interesting uh, backstory because it was – not available from this Oscar until like the fifties, I think, or sixties, maybe where it was just, that's where he decided, you know, he wanted to re-release it. He, he didn't like the movie for a long time because he was going through a lot of stuff while the movie was being made. Yeah. He was getting divorced and everything. And like going through uh, a serious scandalous divorce. Definitely uh, deserved that. Most his likely. mother died. Yeah. The, uh, the tents and everything, the sets all like, either blew down or burned down. Like there's a photo of him uh, sitting outside the, just a wrecked set, just looking sad. Uh, he and, had a lot of things go wrong. Yeah. And the IRS was after him for back taxes or something also. Yeah. I mean, so, he eventually gets blacklisted from Hollywood, I think during the communism era. Well, yeah, not 1929. Yeah. But later. Well, sure. Yeah. Talking about these movies, uh, how, so you were able to find them all pretty easily. Yeah, all but one was on YouTube. I forgot which one was on. I had to watch on Tubi. I don't remember the one. What which one was? It was that? probably the crowd. Actually, I had to send you the Internet Archive link. Oh, that was Internet Archive. Yeah, a few I watched on the Internet Archive. Like Chang was on there, and uh, the crowd, and I think Sunrise was on Tubi. Now that I'm uh, kind of remembering, I think Seventh Heaven was on Tubi. Well, whatever. Yeah. So they're all pretty available. You can watch them for free. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Part Probably the best one you can watch is Charlie Chaplin's uh, The Circus on a Criterion. Yeah, uh, that's definitely got the criteria. going to be your, your cleanest looking one, although Wings has been pretty cleaned up too. Sure. So uh, what is, have you done any research into this time period that we are watching these movies in? Uh, time period? Well, I mean, the one that I know just from my high school history classes, obviously it was on the, uh, you know, the great depression was looming. Yeah. Uh, so this was like the last gasps, gasp of the, you know, the roaring twenties and the, the jazz age and, and what have you. And also it was really interesting to see how much world war one loomed in these movies. It was like a giant part of obviously wings, but also I feel like, there were other themes, other, you know, there are themes of that, of war, recently fought terrible war in some of the movies. Yeah, World War One looms huge. I think uh, Prohibition is going on during these movies. So Yeah, uh, the racket specifically tackles that. Yeah, and I think that was until 1933 when it was repealed. So any drinking in these movies, if it's a set in the United States, is, uh, you know, they would be breaking all the rules, basically. 
Do you think they actually used actual alcohol in in some of these films, like like in the racket where the guys like I don't know swilling uh, champagne or whatever? All right, step away from Google. It wasn't illegal to drink alcohol during Prohibition, according to the History Channel. The 18th Amendment only forbade the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors, not their consumption. By law, any wine, beer, or spirits, or champagne, Americans had stashed away in January 1920 were theirs to keep and enjoy in the privacy of their homes. And now, back to the show. And that's basically it. So that brings us to the uh, first Academy Awards, as I described in our intro very eloquently, Louis B. Mayer, studio head, wanted to unite uh, the five major studios at the time. Uh, and this is the big question of this episode that I'm going to pose to you, uh, Cyrus, and our viewers. What is a best picture? What do you think of when you think of when you're picking a best picture? What are you thinking? Because in 1929, they had two categories because they couldn't decide. Right. You have your financial box office. These are the, the ones that made all the money. And you have, these are artistic, unique pictures. Yeah, and there's definitely, you can definitely see that where like Wings is definitely the movie. It has this, you know, has this giant budget. It's this action movie. It's really dynamic. It's got all these battle scenes. Um, some of them way too long. Um, Whereas something like the crowd is definitely more of an artistic achievement. And it's interesting to see the, the box office versus artistic um, kind of dynamic. Yeah. So what's your personal, when you, when you watch the Oscars, like, what are you hoping, you know, do you, is it kind of just a gut feeling? Well, I've been let down uh, Kenny by the Oscars. So, so often, you know, that in uh, I text you my disappointment every yeah. Oscar night. Uh, so I, I kind of stopped, you know, picking that, you know, but I, I guess that's a really good question. Like, what do I think of when I think of a, a best picture and what constitutes a best picture? I guess it's one where the filmmakers have complete control over the process and the most... <laughs> thoughtful, well-made movie is produced. I mean, I really, I think my definition of the best picture is probably the, the definition that everyone, I mean, you know, everyone has kind of that, oh, well, I just want to pick the best picture, the best overall picture. That's what best picture is. But what people's definition of that is going to vary. So, I mean, I kind of lean towards a more um, artistic, uh, you know, I like uh, auteurs, you know, I like, you know, uh, a director that has, this vision. So I like to see that vision kind of come to the, be brought to the movie. One that's not made cynically, but personally. Best picture, right? We're talking about uh, what makes for a best picture. And I think part of what you're saying is, which is kind of what I agree, which is that there's something to the whole auteur theory. I like when there is a unified film behind yeah. one director. I think of movies by directors. So I think of this director made this movie and I liked this movie. I don't yeah. really, Movies where I don't know the directors, I might enjoy, I might like love. There might be like an MCU or a Spider-Man movie. And I'm like, I enjoyed that quite a bit. I don't know who the director of that movie is, you know, for the most part. I'm not paying attention to that. Sure. But I I love new directors and like a new vision. Because sometimes you're like, I'm bored with all these fucking, can I swear? Uh, I'll allow it. 
fucking Scorsese movies, you know, like where it's just like they're just like it's becomes a prestige film or Spielberg is even worse. You know, like it's just like automatically elevated to the top based on director when all these younger directors are making more interesting films um, and are probably not getting the recognition that they deserve. In fact, usually aren't getting the recognition that they deserve. Like, um, I don't know, like the Daniels with everything everywhere all at once, you know, Yeah. Uh, in the most recent example of that. But they did actually get their. Get the golden boy. They, they got did. that golden boy. So, yeah, go, let's talk about golden boy for one second, because you're actually uh, the one who coined the phrase. And I was thinking about it. You said it to me and I'm like, why does this sound familiar? And I remembered at all the old uh, Oscar parties we used to have, like back in the day, you'd always walk around with that big pipe and you'd be saying things like, who's going to get that golden boy? Who's, you know, and you'd slap someone on the back way too hard. And that was like your thing for a while. Do you remember that? I was I was going through a real rough phase, if I remember. Um, there was, I think I had just lost my job recently. And I had also just been through a couple of shaky relationships. So I was really, yeah, it's true. I was really kind of clinging to something. And I did base a big part of my personality on the Oscars. And specifically, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like being the grand uh, ringmaster of these Oscar parties that used to held, which would got really crazy, you know. You never picked the correct best winner though back then. You were old. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I was I was shooting uh I was shooting uh wildly with my yeah. picks. I don't remember exactly what some of my picks were because I don't remember when we stopped doing these things. I think there was an incident and we had to stop doing it. But I, I think your Braveheart one, you just I you st- I think you broke the door leaving. You were so mad about that win, I think. Uh, I don't even remember what it was up against. but uh, Yeah, that would be an interesting. Why don't you do a, another podcast where, um, well, I guess you're doing that now. We're reviewing every single, well, we'll review Braveheart in what, 17 years when you finally- Why don't I, why don't I start at the, well, that that is a good point, Cyrus. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is the question- all of the co I've lined up a few co-hosts and one of the main things they all ask is, uh, you know, they want to do the movies in the seventies, you know, they want to do the eighties. They want to really uh, dig in on those films that and sweet you- sound those sweet talkies. They want to oh, get, yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone wants to the, the cool films they heard of, you know, and all these other podcasts that do Academy Awards, they have to figure out ways to start later and then come back to these at the right. beginning. You know, so but the reason here's the reason I do everything chronologically here is because where's the camera straight ahead? We do everything chronologically. Hold on. Where's the camera? We do everything chronologically here because filmmaking is an art and all arts are not created in a vacuum. They are created on the shoulders of the people who came before them. And when you watch these movies, particularly I look at the racket or even Wings. Let's take Wings for as a perfect example. Wings, you don't get to Top Gun Maverick without mm-hmm. Wings first. That cockpit shot they use in Wings was invented for that movie. Putting a camera in front of, uh, you know, it's in, famous from Star Wars. It's famous from every movie where people fly. The first time they put a camera there was in Wings. It's where it starts. So we start at the beginning at, so that by the time we get to Top Gun Maverick in, what did you say, 17 years? Yeah. <laughs> the people who are still with us 
listening to this show will know that's from Wings. They took that from Wings. Yeah, no, absolutely. You could definitely see the echoes, if I may use such a word, um, in modern movies in these in the in the selection of movies from 1929 you know and uh camera shots that are now taken for granted were you know completely reinvented there's uh or invented not reinvented for these movies and they had to do it in much more complicated ways and again you see all these things the use of montage the use of dissolving the use of tracking shots and dolly shots you know like that were pioneered in these movies that um, continue to this very day, which, yeah, I mean, I think the chronological, I think that's a really great point that, you know, you kind of get the accumulation if you do it chronologically, yeah. though it is um, uh, maybe a little bit more difficult, an entry point for someone who's not used to watching silent movies or have heard very little about it. But I, I find them, find them interesting. Cause I mean, what are you going to talk about the Godfather for the 8 millionth time? Like, I yeah. mean, we get it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's why here we are. And let's get this thing rolling. So we're going to we're going to go through each of these movies uh, and we're just going to kind of give our, some quick thoughts. So don't give away which one is your favorite yet. Sure. But you can give away which one was your least favorite of these. So what's number eight? What's the which movie here is not an Academy Award Best Picture for sure in your mind? The jazz singer. Oh, uh, if I had an explosion sound effect, I would do it right there. Let's share the screen. We're back. I can't see that poster. Am I supposed to see it? Yeah, you can see the poster. So, uh, yeah, for those uh, for those of you listening, audio, we're looking at a poster of the jazz singer. This isn't. We're not going to get too crazy with this movie. This is what you're seeing. So, yeah, we're going to talk about that scene that's depicted on the poster, also. That's one of the most upsetting scenes in a series of upsetting scenes in that movie. All right, Jason, give me a give me your 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 takes here. What's uh why is this low our lowest uh picture? Well, I mean, obviously one of the the main reason is the extensive and horrific use of blackface in it. Um which mm -hmm. I always kind of knew about and heard about and knew that was the one thing I knew about this movie other than the sound aspect. But what I did not know and what I learned in watching this movie, that he's not just in blackface on the stage when he's performing his dumb songs, but uh, he's there's there, there's there, he's in all these scenes that are like these sentimental um, melodramatic scenes where he's weeping and crying over his poor mother and in blackface. And like there's all these the dramatic uh, um crescendo of this movie he's completely in blackface the entire time and weeping and weeping over his poor mama and like it's it's horrible it's just it's sort of the build up to the blackface build up, and then once the blackface occurs it doesn't end until the end of the the movie so i mean obviously the latter half of this movie is should be put in a fire you know there it, it's just and I, I don't particularly care about, oh, it was normal for the time or Al Jolson was bringing, you know, um, uh, black music to a white audience and he supported black performers or all this, you know, kind of, you know, justification that is given to this movie. Like, I don't care. It's, it's just really, really uh, unpleasant to watch. 
And I'm, I'm glad you know, to hear you say that because just on that one topic of the blackface, because I, there's a lot of, you know, film, a lot. This pro- movie, more than any of the others, has had the most written about it and the most discussed about it. And one of the main topics is the blackface used in it. And I don't, as far as I'm concerned, this show isn't about apologizing for the past or putting it into that historical context. I'm looking at this from today. And to, this is just racist garbage to me. Yeah. And, and like, again, like, you know, he used it for performance, you know, for whatever reason. And but uh, it's just those scenes at the end where he's, you know, he's he's weeping and crying and we're supposed to feel something. But it's just complete. I, I, you know, I think if he wasn't in blackface, I think those I would find those scenes pretty um, unwatchable because of the thick layer of sentimentality that's smeared over that and the entire movie as a whole. But then there's at the end when he's like performing for his mama and he's singing another one of his uh, seemingly inexhaustible uh, uh, mama songs. He's got like three or four songs about his mama and his mother is just loving it. She just loves the blackface, she, uh, <laughs> you know, and I don't know. There's just, it's just terrible. But on top of that, and then there's also the, you know, there's the the issue that what kind of jazz is this? This is the worst jazz I've ever heard in my life. And it doesn't sound remotely jazz, even the jazz of the time. I mean, it's clearly this sanitized, uh, goofed up uh, jazz music and make, made even worse by his uh, hammy performances of of the of the uh, songs. Broad, um, broad. Uh, lame <laughs> um, performances. Uh, so there's that, and then it's just again, like the, the melodrama is is you know, is it, just sickly. You know, like his stupid you know uh, conflict between oh, I'm gonna be a, am I gonna um, sing at Temple or am I gonna perform for um, this audience? My dream. Am I gonna fulfill my artistic dream or my dream or my uh family obligations that's like the conflict at the heart of this movie but um i don't care and yeah. also i don't understand why he can't do both like why can't he sing at his father's deathbed and then also do the other thing like the next day like the old man dies like after they he scheduled sang. them the same night though that's why yeah, but why can't all right so he misses but then there's also this thing where it's like, well, I can't come. But it's like a dress rehearsal, right? I mean, he's like, I can't miss the dress rehearsal. Like, what is going to be happening in this dress rehearsal that is not happening on the night? He's got the songs down. He knows what he's going to sing. It's like, I don't understand why he couldn't go to the dad's deathbed uh, during uh, the opening. I mean, during the dress rehearsal. But whatever. I mean, aside from that, you know, he fails in... in um, and uh, saving his father with the power of his song because the old man drops dead right after. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just, and then like, I just didn't care for it on any level. I, I just found it to be uh pretty uh, maudlin and um, lame. And then you get to the, the blackface. I think the most interesting part of the movie was the, the insight and the, uh, that it, gave to the uh a very insular jewish community you know i thought that was kind of interesting and in how like very uh jewish the movie is 
And it feels like that might have been a, you know, a, a, even more of a um, breakthrough than the sound, you know? I mean, I just feel like it, that was not probably depicted, though I don't know, in a mainstream movie at the time, you know, just how like, oh, it, you know, it goes into the, it's just unapologetically uh, a Jewish film, which I, I I think is the most interesting thing. And also that guy who played the cantor, cantor Rabinowitz, like, I guess he really was a, a cantor. So uh, I, that's kind of, yeah, he was like the, the biggest cantor of them all or, or whatever, you know. Yeah, I, I totally am in agreement with you on this movie. I think I knew right away once he started singing the first, I think when he was a kid singing, I was like, ugh, this is, not, I'm already not interested. And that kid should have quit. Like, yeah. and it's like, I agree with you. I think I had read someone that had a review saying like it was like their father or grandfather's favorite movie. And because it spoke to that kind of Jewish experience, I guess, of uh, people coming yeah. to this country. Uh, I don't know if there were Russian uh, Jews escaping from. I think I think that was a big thing at the time I was reading. Well, uh, Jolson was from uh, well, what's present day Lithuania? Yeah, I believe. Lithuania. Uh, so yeah, they. He, Jolson's they, a terrible actor, by the way. He's terrible when they. It's interesting when the sound comes on, and like he actually has to like say this dialogue, and we're hearing it. It's just, it's just yeah. terrible. Um, it's bad. Yeah, He's, I think one of the newspapers at the time that I read set, straight up said because a lot of things were praising it, but one was like, "Yeah, it's like a reel for his like mu music career." Yeah, the movie basically. Definitely, it's definitely some ad for like, "Oh, I'm going to use this to springboard to get get more people in the vaudeville seats." Yeah, that hammy singing style though, the eyes big all over the place. Just how he's suddenly fifty, like he was like a kid, and then yeah, that's like another 50. thing. He's like. 58 years old in this movie. And I, I had a question. So he leaves home, right? Yeah. And then does he not see his family for like, like 40 four or five years. years? And then he kind of kind of breezes back in and he immediately starts like, you know, his mother is really big, really important to him, apparently, even though he didn't see her for 48 years. And then he immediately starts like hitting on his mother. Like there's that horrible scene where he's playing piano for him. And it's one of the few sound scenes in the movie. Yeah. And he, like he's like kissing his mother on the mouth and like saying he's saying oh don't be so kittenish and like it's just really gross Times were different back then uh that yeah. that's gonna come up in another movie too kissing on the mouth but this movie apparently was based on a play and the play was based on al jolson's real life career the guy who wrote the play had seen Al Jolson perform somewhere and really liked him and was got to know him, I guess, and wrote the play. And then they were going to make a movie and they were going to cast someone else at first. But then they were like, no, we'll just get the guy who it's based on. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think he's supposed to be like 20 something, I think, in this movie. They he want us to believe. And no way. Yeah. I don't know. I know. I, I know jazz is kind of not something you can really describe like it's not like something you can put towards what jazz is you just kind of know it and I, like i feel like i this does not feel like jazz to me in any way shape or form this sounds like weird vaudeville uh you know he's doing that affect with his hey yeah with a voice that's very that vaudeville voice yeah yeah i mean vaudeville but yeah it doesn't have any swing or anything to it it's just um like i said quite lame 
It's interesting you bring up other people playing Jolson, and that was an I that was um an idea they were kicking around, which I you know may have been better because they probably would have gotten an actual actor. But there's like sequels to this movie. Yeah, they they made like were, are they sequels or they just remake it? No, there's a movie called The Jolson Story, which was in 1946. But they had another person playing Jolson, this guy named Larry Parks. And then there was uh, another one called Jolson Sings Again, 19, uh, 1949. And uh, I don't know who played him in that case. But, yeah, it was just someone else. And I think he might have dubbed the singing. Yeah. Singing parts of the those sequels. But it seemed like his career kind of, you know, thankfully fell off a cliff after a certain, you know, after maybe even this movie, you know. Yeah, uh, I don't want to wish ill on anyone, but I would assume that, uh, A, people from this time period, if you study them enough, they all had tragic endings. But, you know, mm-hmm. this this did not make me ever want to see him again. It made me want to avoid him, if anything. Yeah, there was that scene or that line of dialogue from where his mother is watching him perform for the first time or something. And she says, uh, he doesn't belong. Jolt meaning uh, her son, Jackie or Jack, yeah. uh, uh, doesn't belong to me anymore. He belongs to the world. And like, he's going to be like this, uh, super don't put star. that on us. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, uh, I don't, I don't think so. You, you keep him. Mama. Yeah, no, he's still yours. Yeah. No, thanks. So they got the guy, this guy that directed it was a guy named Alan Crossland. He had done shorts with sound, which is why he got this job. Oh, so, really? Yeah, oh, he had done a couple good. of shorts. This isn't, this is the first feature movie with synchronized sound, but there were shorts before this. Oh, cool. So they brought this guy in uh, to do the jazz singer. He died soon after this movie, like within five or six years after in a car, yeah, in a car accident. So there's not a lot on his resume afterwards. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, so the sound, just to talk about that for a second, like, yeah, you're coming out of the silent era and just about everyone who saw this movie at the time would be like, this is a marker, like that things are changed, you know? Oh, like, absolutely. And I think it is clear, but I think you can't confuse the fact that this is a marker, that it did something that changed the film with that meaning this is a good movie. No, you know? it's just like a, a movie of that would be completely forgotten if not for the the sound element and it would have been any movie i mean they just kind of got the ball rolling with this movie but yeah it's it's not worthy of anything other than just a footnote in history in my opinion where it's saying oh for a sound movie but then i had a question about the sound actually i don't know if you know the answer to this like why isn't the whole movie in sound like they have scenes but it's just like the title cards and it's a regular silent movie and then the songs are in sound. It's you know all the all the music is uh, is reco- it has sound in it. And then that that scene at the piano with his mother, there's a little bit of dialogue going back and forth. But why wasn't the whole movie recorded in sound? Do you know that? I I know it was very difficult to record it in sound. Like if you saw the movie Babylon, they had to like get it right on that one take because the recording sound would actually be recorded right onto the film. You know, so at with the image. So if you don't have it lined up just right, it's it's it toss the whole thing. So, you know, that's why these scenes are longer. Like they're usually these little blocks of sound, you know, where he's going to sing a song and he, he says something before it or after it. Or maybe I think the dad comes in at one point and yells no. And I think that might end that sound and it's back to silent. 
So it's little chunks they were able to do because it was just too difficult at the time. And it's heavy equipment. Did you see Babylon that was not from last year? They kind of go into the silent, like just like this big, heavy, hot machinery. They had to film inside. A lot of silent movies were filmed outside with no roof so they could get maximum sunlight. So like they had to do it in a closed, enclosed space. It's just very challenging at, at the beginning. So I'm assuming, again, I don't know this Vitaphone process that they used, but I'm assuming it. all of those challenges were at play. Yeah, that makes sense. I found it interesting, again, to go back to this scene uh, with him and his mother at the piano, because that's like the most, di- that's the, feel like that's like kind of the, one of the centers of this movie, you know, kind of establishes that he loves his mother, even though he went away for 48 years. But like uh, the the woman who plays the um, the mother, I don't know her name, but like seems kind of like nervous and shocked that her or like they seem to be just as like, you know, trepidatious and excited that they're actually talking. And it's, it, it, there's a kind of like a nervousness about their line deliveries that definitely feels like, oh, you know, because they were just used to saying whatever they wanted. And it it, it seemed like uh, and it was that what they call that acting. And uh, it's just interesting that it seemed like the performers were just as kind of like thrilled by the the use of sound as I guess the audience. I guess the wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet line. That was something Jolson used in his shows. Like that wasn't like he he wrote it for the movie. Like, oh, this is going to have a double meaning in the movie when I say it and you heard it. He just used that in all of his shows. He'd do a song. Oh, okay. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Here's my next song, you know, and then just go into it. So I I wonder if that was even like part of a script, like, or if they just were like, just do your routine, bud. Some of it does seem ad-libbed. Like uh, it, some of it, the the sound scenes do feel just kind of very loose um, and um, yeah, very uh, kind of off the cuff. I mean, it's, it, I mean, the audience must've been there, their, uh, their fancy hats and fedoras must've come off the top of their heads when they heard this sound though. I mean, it's just like, it was just, um, they would have been blown away. I mean, one of the early sound quotes that I'd heard was that when sound movies first started, it was when people had to stop talking. Apparently during silent movies, you know, talking during a movie was no big deal. You know, it's like you got an orchestra playing sure. in the movie, you're just talking to, Hey, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? And as soon as you got sound, you're like forced to pay attention to the screen because you're, if you miss something now, it's, you know, you're, you're behind in the movie. Yeah. It must've felt uh, to the people who are the filmmakers of this movie, they must've been like, we got to get on this sound thing immediately. And uh, it, it reminds me, this is a strange parallel, but it kind of reminds me of uh, the early nineties, uh, the transition from hair metal uh, to uh, when the, when uh, grunge started breaking and uh all those hair metal uh dudes were like uh oh <laughs> our the gravy train has left us Done. you know first heard jane's addiction or whatever they're just like but um this movie the amount of despair and like harm this movie caused to all, a lot of people in the industry at the time all these silent actors who didn't have voices or spoke with like a foreign accent or just weren't going to fit in like their careers ended with this we're movie over. yeah over yeah yeah, and it's too bad that such a terrible movie had to do that. Though it would have been something else. It would have been. I, I, I would recommend people at home watch Blackmail, the first uh, UK uh, 
English uh, sound movie uh, by Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Is that an Alfred Hitchcock? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm tying this in with the other show. Alfred Hitchcock's Blackmail, great first sound movie with none of this uh, inherent straight-up racism just right in your face. Mm -hmm. Uh, All of these movies from the time, though, it is interesting. You know, it it is when people say, oh, well, blackface was a thing back then. I'm like, you know, I I watch a lot of movies and some people never used blackface during that time. And I'd like to think it's because they knew they shouldn't. And yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if Alfred Hitchcock wanted to put, uh, you know, he would have done it. He he did use blackface in one of his. I'm pretty sure he did. I mean, like people didn't weren't thinking about that. They were thinking of it if they thought of it at all as some sort of like tribute but i don't even think so i think they're straight up mocking black people with it with it you know and like that was the uh that was the appeal it's 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 such a shameful i'd like to think that if i lived at that time not only would i have not liked the blackface but i would not have liked this movie and his performing even without the blackface like that if i was watching this movie i would have left it like whoa sound like i can't wait for a good movie to have some sound Uh, what's what's the second uh, American movie that's with sound? That's the question. Uh, All right, let's move on then. Let's move on. Excellent question that I do not have the answer to. No answer. All right, step away from Google, folks. We've got this covered for you. The first all-talking picture is not the jazz singer. It's only partial. The first all-talking picture is Lights of New York from 1928. And don't go, oh, like you knew that. None of us have ever heard of this movie. None of you have seen this movie. All right, and now, back to the show. No one knows. And no one should know the first one, because this one, honestly, it's an asterisk at the bottom of a textbook. Don't watch it. Don't watch it. And don't watch, I hope you agree with me on the second one, but don't watch my worst movie uh, on this, of the eight movies, Chang, A Drama of the Wilderness, Uh uh, by Marion Cooper and Ernest Shodashak. It's a movie, it stars a, Chantui as playing herself, the wife, and crew playing himself, the pioneer, and a monkey named Bimbo. Yeah, Bimbo, which is definitely not the monkey's real name. It was definitely an American name that they funny put name in. by the Americans. This is a snuff film uh, disguised as a movie. This is a couple of ma- uh, masculine film director dudes went yeah. to another country and were like, "We're gonna kill a bunch of big cats and animals." And we're gonna film Island, it. right? Or modern Violently. These are I look, these were actually killed. Every animal yeah, yeah. killed yeah. on screen was killed for us. Yeah, all I, I think they would have uh the movie should have had that thing at the end where all animals were were harmed during the make making all, all animals, even Bimbo, who survived. Oh, yeah, those monkeys were probably tortured within a uh an inch of their lives to get the reactions that they uh they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, it's all presented as, and some people have said, oh, well, this might be one of the first documentaries. No way. May, you know, these might be real people and they might actually live in that geographical location, but they were not killing uh, leopards, tigers, and, you know, herding elephants daily. You know, I've watched enough of these survivor shows to know these big cats stay away from people. You know, you might get one and you have to deal with it. And that's something you're dealing with in a month or two. But this is like, they're like every day they're killing. Yeah, them. They amped up the drama and they probably yeah. compounded a lot of things. And they definitely restaged stuff. And like, oh, why don't you trap a leopard and shoot it in a pit? Oh, why don't that's you so do it Why don't you keep so killing gross. leopards? Yeah. There's a scene with a baby elephant in that movie. Uh, 
that it's just stomach churning where they like trap a baby elephant for some reason and and then like drag it around and it's just like ugh. but yeah i mean i i found it interesting you know as like this kind of early documentary but it, it's clearly you can see the hand of the directors in it and to me this is just as racist because this is like some white dudes being like look at these savages and their savage environment and look how violent they are and like it's treated as to bring you bring the adventure home to you on the screen yeah the, the but also that- framed in a in an american context where there's like they're like oh you know there's all these like title cards which are full of like american slang and like oh yeah what are you doing? You you rap school or you know like you you know like the 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 monkey is is talking like a 1930s jazz man or whatever you know it, it's just uh, very um, yeah it's like American home videos or or you know where they where they do the funny voice over the pets uh, is it is that the is that American home videos yeah it's, I know what you're talking about they definitely have there's a scene with a a bear a mama bear and a baby bear where they're like. Come on, Ma, play with me. Eh. Yeah. You want a newspaper? <laughs> Calvin Coolidge. Those bears were later killed for the. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and so the thing that's interesting here's the thing that is interesting about this movie. And again, this is interesting in the film studies way, not in any other way. These two directors later went on and did King Kong in 1993. Yeah. And I watched King Kong a couple nights ago. And holy moly, that movie reminds me of this in so many ways. First of all, the the movie stars a director wanting to get some more exciting action in the jungle. So he's basically these two guys stand in and he hears about this King Kong thing and and he's going to risk everything to take these guys to film it. That movie's pre-code and you you look at a still and you're like, ah, that looks like claymation. But when it's when you watch the movie, it's terrifying and they're not scared to show People get smushed. People get picked up and bitten. He's like ripping a T-Rex's mouth apart at one point and blood's gushing out. It's like very, very violent and terrifying to watch. And you can see that that's that's this guy, these guys, masculine MO is, you know, we're going to show these animals. It's going to be these bloody, violent uh, battles. They have a a crew of, uh, you know, black actors playing like the tribe at King Kong. And again, similar to Chang. It's like presented as, oh, we're visiting them in their native habitat. And look at how, look at the crazy uh, things they get up to, you know? Yeah, it was, um, yeah, I guess uh, the one of the directors was almost stampeded by uh, elephants at the end of that, the, that, that climax of the movie with his stampeding elephants, which they probably, you know, uh, attacked with rifles to make behave in the way that they wanted to. Yeah. But, uh yeah he was almost killed which would have been uh which would have been good i, I would have been fine with that i think that would have been that would have been the way die for your art uh, yeah there were some, i mean there were interesting shots and and things of you know the jaguar or whatever running right at the camera which but then when you start to think what did they have to do to get that shot and you torment this poor animal yeah, um, there's a really interesting sequence where some leopard is chasing Bimbo through the um, oh, yeah. woods, and uh, it's really good. It's it, it, it's it's really exciting, and there's all these close-ups of Bimbo, you know, kind of acting scared. Again, they're probably squeezing its balls or something to make it do that, but uh, 
it, it is actually a, a, a good scene, a kind of a well-directed scene and kind of dynamic. But aside from that, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I guess they might have thought they were, you know, betraying this uh, family in a accurate way. But, you know, they, they definitely I don't even know how the I could find very little about the process of like filming this other than like the animal stuff, like yeah. how they pick this family, if they were even related, if it actually was a family of um living in thailand or, or or northern thailand i guess where they filmed it um so i could find very little about that and with the you know what how they went about actually making this movie yeah the filmography looks like they did a few documentaries similar to chang before this so they were probably i i feel like the king kong director story that he tells in that movie is their backstory is that they were just going around with their cameras barging into local villages and being like, oh, we're going to shoot this thing here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. So, and that's in unique and artistic. That was nominated in the unique, unique and artistic. I guess unique is what uh, described it. Cause I didn't think it was artistic. No, I don't think it was really, I mean, it was supposed to be, um, it was supposed to be, I don't know, like a window into a, a new world, but yeah, I mean, I I guess so. I I didn't care for it at all, Kenny. That is actually my number seven movie too. Bro, really? Okay, good. We're pr- we're pretty much yeah. We're in line then. That was my seven and eight. I ranked Chang under Jazz Singer, but just because I don't like animals being killed for it. No animals were killed in the Jazz Singer, but uh, both of them don't like. All right, where do you want to move from here? Wh- which one do you want to? Oh, uh, just one thing more. I mean, there, did you ever hear of the movie uh, Roar? It was made in the 60s or 70s with Tippi Hedren, a, a, you know, a Hitchcock uh, ingenue. Yeah, Melanie, Melanie Griffith, right? Was she their daughter? She's her daughter in real life, I think. Tippi oh, I, Hedren. I think she was a kid in that movie. Roar. In Roar? Yeah. Because it's yeah, like we're, a family. It's like a family who's living with lions. And I think lions were actually hurt in the making of the film. And like, they, again, it was in these things where like they're trying to get lions to behave in a... Uh, they're trying to turn lions into actors, but it's a it's a batshit movie. So, yeah, I guess for those of you who actually who watch all eight of these movies and Chang is your pick for best picture, then go see Roar. It's a, probably the next yeah. recommendation. Do you want to round out? I don't know where to go from here. It's hard because Chang is so unlike the other movies. Nothing segues uh, nicely from that. Do you want me to tell you my second my uh, my next pick my number six yeah. i guess Ooh, yeah let's move up what's your number six uh seventh heaven is now number six. Oh, wow we are in total agreement so far really well, how about time apples yeah how about that so uh, seventh heaven, what's your uh what's your grief with this one my grief i don't know i mean i thought there were interesting elements of it but again i found it to be pretty sentimental uh pretty melodramatic um I didn't, you know, I, I didn't really get the relationship that was at the heart of this, like this loving relationship. Um, I don't feel like they really had any particular chemistry, but I guess that's a movie, you know, all these twenties movie, all these early movies, like has a similar kind of um, uh, romantic kind of dynamic where it's just like, 
this poor woman is like crying and crying. And then the man gives her like, like a flower. And then she's in love immediately. Like that definitely happens in a lot of these movies. If I've noticed. Yeah. I just didn't, I didn't care for it. Um, I thought there were some interesting sets and, but I, it, it just, it was just a little mawkish for me. So a little, uh, let me just do a quick uh, seventh heaven directed by Frank Borzage. Frank Borzage won uh, best director for this movie. Oh, did he? Yep. Uh, our actress, Janet Gaynor, played Diane, won Best Actress for this movie and for two other movies. Yeah, for- no, it's interesting that she won her Oscar based on not one movie, but like three movies, including one of the other movies in this list, right? Yes, she's in Sunrise as well. Sunrise, right? Yeah. I think Street Angel is, I didn't write it down, but I think that's what the name of the third movie. Street Angel. So she, she's a little bit of a street angel in this movie too, where she's For like, sure. is she a prostitute or her sister? Definitely is is some sort of woman. I think of- it, it's implied they're both prostitutes living together in the house, sisters, uh, to, to make ends meet. That's I think that's the implication, although you could read it as maybe she was not yet a prostitute. I don't know. I think she was a prostitute the way she's treated by the other characters. Yeah, immediately that, that you know, like so. I mean, she is very at the beginning of this movie. She's like, I think the first time we see her, she's being whipped by her sister. Uh, her sister loves whipping uh, people. Oh, yeah. And she's just like, but she's like being whipped. And then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then she's kind of mistreated or disregarded by chico the her uh, you know the male lead chico played by charles farrell uh he's left to kind of he leaves her kind of lying in the gutter after rescuing her because a sewer cleaner right i mean that's his job and his dream is to get above the sewer to work on the street not he really wants to be a street sweeper the the, there's like this caste society where street sweepers are like like you know gods they're seen as gods in the in this paris kind of area and yeah i mean i kind of like that like his his dream was not really that uh grand he just wanted to be a street sweeper like that was kind of interesting and like yeah i don't know and like he was like an inspired you know uh, you know supposed to be an inspiring kind of um influence to uh, what's her name diane is that their name diane yeah Diane and Chico. Yeah, where she is like, she thinks of herself as, you know, nothing, as dirt. She believes that she deserves everything that she gets. And then Chico says, oh, look to the stars. Always look to the stars. Um, Be, um, uh, look at the world with optimism. And I guess that rubs off on her at at the end of the movie. I mean, obviously, Sunrise, the title Sunrise. Well, that, that's, you're you're in. Seventh, oh no, I'm talking about seventh, about seventh heaven. heaven. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Seventh heaven. Well, I guess what's seventh heaven? What does the title refer to? So seventh heaven is because he Chico lives on the seventh floor of this tenement building. Oh, okay. Is that and it? he brings her up there? Which I will while we're while we're still here. The shot. This is probably the one decent shot in this movie is of them walking up the steps to it. Oh yeah, I, I definitely noted that. That's a really cool shot. Yeah, absolutely. And Hitchcock uses it in Blackmail, which is two years after this. So again, talking about lineages and things coming yeah. up, you know, it's interesting to be like he would have seen this movie. You know, he'd been like, "That's a good shot." Maybe whether he liked the movie, who knows? But you know, this is how these things inspire what comes on later. Yeah. Uh, so- so, and then they would always say, uh, Di- uh, what was it, Chico, Diane, Heaven was like their uh, 
When oh, goes- yeah, that was their uh, their mantra or whatever. That's right. Though they only said it once, I think. But um, no, they would look at the clock at a certain time of the day, like when, when he went. 11 o'clock it was. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, that's what they said. I like that scene where he's like that he has to say it every time. They're doing like the somewhere out there at 11 o'clock every day. Even when he's in war, he's like, I gotta, I gotta do this thing. I gotta like stare off into the distance. And the, Hold on, guys. It's like, we're at war, you idiot. Stop yeah. somewhere out there in the middle of this horrible battle. Horrible battle, which uh, right. I, I think, so this movie is like in two parts, really. There's like this first part, the, both parts I don't like, but this first part is, uh, you know, he's the sewer guy and it's, he, lies uh says this woman diane who's a prostitute is his wife he treats her absolutely miserably until um just so that the police think they're married because they have this charade going that they're married so she won't get arrested right and then she has to be super nice to him until he lets her live in his flat and finally decides he likes her yeah and then he like cooks him like it's funny like they go to bed or whatever they sleep in separate beds yeah the next day, it's super domestic. She's like, please let, you know, she's like cooking him dinner or breakfast and making him coffee. And he's like, no, like, no, he coffee. clearly, no, he clearly likes it. And, but he is, um, he, he's trying not to show it because he's, you know, I think very quickly, he's pretty smitten with her, but he's just pretending and he's kind of hiding behind yeah. roughness and masculinity. I think that's one of the things I hate about this movie going back is that this it promotes this weird masculine idea. And it's in all of these movies to some extent or most of these movies, this masculine idea that like by loving a woman, you can fix her like you, you're going to fix her life. She's going to come out of the gutter and she's going to get her act together because you're a good guy and you love her. And it's all about, you know, it, it's such B.S., And Hollywood has taken that concept of just like a woman in peril and man's going to come save her just by the virtue of what does he say? He's a remarkable fellow constantly. Very remarkable fellow. It's his like little. uh, Yeah, he's very self-satisfied in this movie. Uh, Oh, yeah. Undeservedly so, too, honestly. I think he's, you know, he's an attractive actor. I think. Oh, yeah. He's uh, yeah. they really got a. He almost has this very modern look to him. He He doesn't look like a silent movie star. He looks like a. I don't know. Yeah, he's he. They got a good-looking guy. Yeah. So, I, and Janet Gaynor was fine with what she had to do in this role. You know, she wins a, a, an Oscar for it. The sets, I just felt like everything felt like, you know, some of these other movies we're going to talk about as we start to get to what I think are the top four, like having more of an art to them, where these where sets are like developed and they have a vision. This movie felt like. Hollywood backlot sets and like, hey, we're going to rush to get this thing done. The war footage looked like stock footage. Is the yeah, most I think it was. Worst. It, it really looked, it really did not look great. Yeah, um, you're just watching guys march for like, and you're like, is this actual World War One? Like, why is it, why, you know, they just stuck it in the movie. Yeah, what? there's there's one scene where there's like a pretty big production where, um, what are they invading a French village or something? I might be getting that confused with another movie, but uh, it looks like they got a bunch of ex- like hundreds and hundreds of extras to swarm or, you know, it, it looks like a big production, but maybe that's stock also. I, I don't, I don't, it's hard to know. Yeah. One of the things I read just uh, the other day is like some of these silent movies, like they would borrow shots from other movies and they would actually clip it from the movie itself. Like, so Buster Keaton would take, you know, there's a shot in the crowd of New York City where he would just go to the actual, you know, because they only have limited amounts of these films and he'd cut it out 
and then put it in his movie. And then you rewatch the movie years later and you're like, Where, wasn't there a scene like that in there? It's like, no, yeah, no, it's in Buster Keaton's movie now. That's but funny. I feel like this movie feels like that because all these battle scenes just feel like, you know, Chico's not, we don't see Chico in any of them. They're just. No, 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 that's true. Yeah, I, that's probably goes along with your theory that it's not from this movie. They're like, we need war footage. Just cut it out of this guy's. And didn't Ed Wood, he made all those movies. Oh, yeah, that was all Just stopped. using cuts, clips he found from other movies. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have a ton more to say on this movie, to be honest with you. I like uh, his buddy Goblin. I like that guy. I don't know why he was called Goblin, but uh, that's the other street sweeper. They call each other comrades. Is it Gobin? Or is it oh, Goblin? I don't know. I thought it was Gobin. I think it's spelled Goblin. <laughs> Maybe it's Gobin. I don't know. Gobin. I like that guy's mustache. I was confused by the end of the movie where Chico apparently dies and then someone tells, uh, you know, um, Diane that he's dead, but actually he's not dead. And like, why did they tell? Like, he's not like he got lost in, in on the front somewhere. He died in like some officer's arms or apparently died. So why did the officer say that he died when he knows that they, he, he, he was lying? Yeah, yeah, three people need come in and tell her. Dramatic thing, like, but it's clearly like you. The officer, like, yeah, like he should have said, no, he's not dead. I he died. He uh he got blinded. Yeah. And uh, is that's the deepest honor because now we can't look to the stars because he's so blind. So that's like the last part of the movie where you know uh, Diane says, "I'll be your eyes as you look to the stars" and something like that. Yeah, I don't know. People at the time, they had th- there was a Chaplin movie where a girl, a blind girl, City Lights, where a blind girl, uh, you know, sees they, you know, they, they play on the metaphor. Oh, you can you see me now? And and people loved that. So maybe there's something to uh, going blind and uh, true love and in the 1920s that really struck a chord. Oh, yeah, they definitely used. I mean, Chaplin and City Lights. It's like they he you know that sp- speaking about melodrama, like you know he yeah they use them as like sentimental kind of um props to because i was just i don't know yeah that kind of leads into the next one though if you want to keep going five before well let's lead into the one what's the next one you want to talk about oh the circus all right let's go the circus the circus from 1928 directed by charlie chaplin was given a special award for writing acting directing and producing the circus and that's why we were talking about this one tonight yeah, it's um, you know, I, I like Charlie Chaplin, you know, uh, you know, a fair amount, I guess. Um, but I found this to be a very a lesser Chaplin movie, definitely. And aside from a couple of things, mainly the thematic elephant <laughs> elephants, um, elements in the movie that I kind of like in, in just relation to Chaplin as a performer. You know, Chaplin as a clown, Chaplin as a comedian in real life. And then also he's kind of it's kind of mirrored in this movie. And I I found that to be the best part of the movie. But all in all, I found it to be just a, a very boring movie. And he, the stuff that he does in it is not, you can see it in any other movie, like a better movie, modern times or whatever. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm probably this is probably the first time I'll disagree with you more on a on a stronger note 
because okay. I really, you know, I think I watched this the first, I've, I've watched most of these movies twice now. I've had the benefit of that because I started oh, this okay. about a month before you. But uh, this is I, this movie, and I've also in the last month watched almost every Charlie Chaplin movie that he's directed. So right. I'm, I'm over the top on Chaplin right now just with what I've seen. And that, this is something I think about all Chaplin. Most of us have seen Charlie Chaplin stuff without seeing Charlie Chaplin stuff because almost all of his gags from his shorts and even some from this have been reused straight from the source by Looney Tunes, by Do Donald Duck. There are jokes that they just stole from him. Like, I mean, I guess bar back then it was all whatever. Wait, Charlie Chaplin stole from Donald Duck? No, they, Disney and... Oh, the other way around. The cartoons took from Charlie Chaplin. They would take the gags he used... And then yeah. they would redo them. There was one where he accidentally swallows a whistle in a short. And I remember for sure, I'm watching the gag play out in that short. And I'm like, da Daffy Duck or Donald Duck. Yeah, there's definitely some. Definitely had a scene where they swallowed a whistle and they kept whistling. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of little gags like that, that you start to, that have been just recycled through cartoons later. And I think there's something to the simplicity of the joke that he's telling that is really interesting. And it's almost, I'm a big fan of Little House on the Prairie. And I wasn't originally, but I became one because I realized that that type. Television show? What's that? Television show, Little yeah, House on the Prairie? Show. There's something about that writing that's so perfect for what it is. And I think Chaplin, there's a simplicity, but it's very complex. It's not easy to do comedy. And you should know for sure. That. Oh, yeah. I do know that. Uh, but so like. This is an interesting movie because a lot of the jokes he uses in the circus are classic clown gags with that you might have seen if you went to the circus sure. back in the day that he's put sort of a, a newer spin on. And the mm -hmm. idea of the comedian who doesn't know he's funny, yeah. I think, is is interesting. And I think it's funny for that character. Yeah, he's naturally funny. Um, you know, he doesn't know he's funny. That's a plot point of the movie where he's he's he messes up all these clowns tricks and all the clowns hate him because they won't you won't stick to the strip but he's funnier than any clown just by being himself there's also a scene in the movie that definitely i feel like he reused in a different movie um the scene where he's like shaving the clowns are like shaving each other they're doing yeah. this bit where they're all shaving each other it definitely reminds me of a scene in the great dictator where he's shaving Someone, I forgot who, some someone in the movie. And it's become, it turns into this mess of shaving cream and shaving. And I think that's set to maybe the Barber of Seville or maybe, I don't know, maybe that, maybe that's actually the Looney Tunes thing that I'm thinking of. Yeah, but, um, Bugs Bunny. But yeah, I think it's a bug. That's the Bugs Bunny um, uh, short. But anyway, it, there is a scene in The Great Dictator where he shaves someone like a maniac. And, and I feel like that de the roots of that are definitely in circus. Right. But I think one of the things you have to take that's interesting with, say, Charlie Chaplin is like this character has an emotional arc that starts before this movie. So like if you're a, a person at the time watching any Charlie Chaplin, you're following. It's such an interesting concept that you have this character he plays, but every movie is not related. It's not an interconnected universe like what we no. think of today. There's and a no lot of in there, you know, yeah. and so you're but there's an emotional arc to it. Like it, the tramp in the earlier things are just kind of funny. He's poor. So he's always up to no good. And then by the kid, now he's getting more serious. He's dealing with more adult uh, situations. 
And he's always kind of spurned. Uh, you know, he doesn't end up with the girl at the end of the movie. Yeah, at the end of the movie, there is a c- continuity in these movies in that, like, a lot of them end with him just kind of walking into the distance. I mean, this movie certainly does. Yeah. And there's a few others. I think maybe a couple movies he gets the girl. Maybe he gets that blind girl. I don't know. Um, yeah, but, he gets the... He, I think he might get the blind girl. Yeah, that was from City Lights. City Lights. But there is a thing where he's just kind of... He's a all, a man alone kind of drifting through the world and getting caught up. You can kind of see it as one long movie. And a lot of the times, because it's the same director, it's him, you know, he has this vision and, you know, his ambition kind of went up with, with these movies. And I mean, that's the most interesting thing or one of the most interesting things about him that he just had this complete control and he was just this massive um, star. And he, and this was produced by um, United artists, right? Like his his production company, that yeah, it was uh, Doug. Uh, what Mary Pickford, Mary Pickford, uh, Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks, who hosted the first this Oscar ceremony, the first apparently. Academy Awards. Yeah, him, uh, Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and Mary Pickford. I think are just really interesting period uh, characters from this time because they all played similar. They all not similar, but they all played the character, and they all made multiple movies with that. And it's not something you. I can't think of a single thing nowadays like that. That where it's one, like James Bond has different actors when it, it's not like every James Bond movie. It like does the Daniel Craig movies, they connect, right? Like, does the Connery movies connect? I don't feel like the Connery movies, no, but, but what's his face? There's the same villain in a bunch of those Con- Connery movies. So it's not the same. It's, I can't think of anything that's like, like those. Yeah, those- I can't think of anything either. They don't really do, I mean, does Tyler Perry kind of play the same? He plays that that mother character in all his movies, right? That's a good question. I'm not super familiar with those movies, but that could be it. Yeah. But I, this movie, Back on the Circus, like the tightrope stuff, he's actually, him and the other fella are actually walking the tight. They had to learn how to walk the tightrope for this movie. Sure, yeah. I so mean, that's, that's a commitment that is kind of nuts. I mean, maybe not if you're Tom Cruise, but I think a lot of actors, if you ask them, hey, you got to learn. The tightrope. Right. Well, I mean, Charlie Chaplin was the director and producer, so no one was forcing him to learn yes. the tightrope work. He could have just been like, yeah, I don't know, you do it. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, who knows if there was a net under that. You know, who, you only see the the tightrope. You don't know how high up he is, and there probably was a net, like, pretty close to the, you know, right out of the shot, you know, so... Well, I mean, they use the they use the technique, the split screen technique. So I think for that for the tightrope scenes, like the bottom half would be the audience, and then the top would be him on the tightrope. So yeah, you're right. The mattress is probably like two or three feet below him. So if he does fall off, but he did a lot of his own stunt. I mean, obviously he did a lot of his own stunts, not to the extent that Buster, Buster Keaton did. But you know, he was, um, yeah, yeah. I thought it was, yeah. I, I just found it to be pretty boring and like again if you've seen a lot of charlie chaplin movies you're like yeah 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 i get it you know i like the scene at the beginning where it's very confusing where this pickpocket picks an old man's pocket but then the cops show up and frisk the pickpocket so the pickpocket stuffs the wallet that he just stole into charlie chaplin's pants yeah and then uh tries to go back for it after the cop has left and tries to pick Charlie Chaplin's pocket for the wallet that he just pickpocketed. 
And then the cop comes back and busts <laughs> and busts the pickpocket for stealing <laughs> Charlie Chaplin's wallet. And then the old man shows up and yells at Charlie Chaplin that he stole his wallet, even though he's a total victim of circumstance. And then there's this really great, I mean, the best part of the movie for me is when they have this chase scene throughout this this hall of mirrors and there there's only like four or five people, but it looks like a thousand and like I just feel like that's a very influential shot. You know, Wells used it. Uh, a lot of people have used that kind of funhouse mirror yeah. kind of chase thing. And uh, I, I, I really like that was like the best part for me. I really like that. It made $3.8 million in 1928, that, that um, the circus, which has got to be. I mean, yeah, he was a mega star at the time. And also, I should point out now too, the circus, like that last shot of him sitting in the ring was oh, done. I love um, that, shot. that was the that was another really good part of the movie. He shot that three days after seeing the jazz singer. So yeah. I read that they that they play a super slow down version of Blue Skies, which they, they sing in the jazz singer over that scene, like to yeah. the to heighten like the end of the silent era, like him realizing at that time that, you know, he was in trouble, which is, uh, I, I see, I prefer the circus to city lights. City lights is everyone is like city lights is one of his best movies. Stanley Kubrick said it was one of his favorite movies. And I think city lights is a mess. I think it's, uh, it's a guy hanging out with a rich dude when he's drunk there, but he's his best friend. And then he, the second half he becomes a boxer. It just feels like a bunch of gags that yeah. get left over. Yeah, I don't and remember that. that movie. But the reason is because he made it silent like two years into the sound era. Like he was like, no, like, OK, yeah, it's a sound era. But guess what? You're getting another silent film from me. I don't care. That's I just want to say from the editing chair a couple of days later that I absolutely love The Gold Rush. It's my favorite Charlie Chaplin movie uh, that I watch. I plan on watching this every New Year's Eve. And The Circus is right up there with one of my favorites. Although I think I'm overheating at this point in the interview. So I didn't do it enough justice. Back to the show. I like Modern Times. I feel like that's one. I, I remember liking that one. Modern it's Times. the so one where he's he's walking down the street waving the red flag and he gets caught up in a, as like a communist. Yeah, in a protest. Yeah, yeah, I like that's that. That's also the only time the tramp ever speaks is at the end of modern times. And it's uh, right. it's a uh, hilarious. I don't want to give that away because that's not a movie we're supposed to be talking about. But just to go back to the end scene of the circus real briefly, that yep. him standing in the middle of that empty circle of dirt. Like, I thought that was a very beautiful kind of final image and him being alone in the circle and like how he was alone in a lot of ways, you know, like he was. Just like he pushed everyone away from him. He was the the clown in the circle. And I know I just like that last shot of the movie. I but then had a weird optimistic, like off to the next adventure kind of walk into the. Yeah, but that's all his movies. They all end in some sort of like optimism, like look to the yeah. stars, Mary. Yeah, that's it's true. It's true. It's what I love. I it's one of the I love him, though. Charlie Chaplin. I I I can't forgive him, and I don't think we should forgive people for the weird stuff they get up to. The fact that he married two like sixteen-year-olds, like that's probably that's problematic. But yeah, I think yeah. you have to separate art from artists because otherwise, everyone is a monster. Sure, you get to know. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. All right, I'm moving us into my number five, which is "The Racket" by Lewis Milestone. Interesting. Uh, available on YouTube for free. 
Uh, yep. 84 minutes. Racket, uh, is, uh, this is all of my information any that I provide to people, by the way, will mostly be from uh, Wikipedia. So okay. they're looking to cite my sources. I'm just, uh, it's all in my head. I, uh, I know. Oh, the Wikipedia notes are all in your head? No, just the knowledge is all in my head from the books that I've read. There's, there's a stack of books right out of shot uh, in my, my apartment right now. And at least a couple on the making of the racket. If I, if I... Mm, yeah, I, mm, yes. I, uh, I like the racket. I mean, I found it to be very confusing, but um, especially just... You know, could have used some sound, this movie, I feel. Could have used a little bit of talking, I feel. But um, I found it to be kind of a, you know, an early noir-y movie that I, uh, that I, uh, I thought was pretty entertaining. Thomas Megan uh, playing, uh, what's his name? Captain James McQuig. This feels like an early uh, Jimmy Cagney or like a, like it's weird. What's his name from the Untouchables? uh, Capone? No, no, he's the cop. So he's the uh, Elliot Ness, I guess. Elliot Ness, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, the whole movie's based on Capone, you know, like it's based on Chicago, uh, you know, w- the reality in Chicago. I mean, that that guy who plays the the criminal, uh, Scarcy or whatever his name is. Yeah, Louis Wolheim as Nick Scarcy. Yeah, he's like, I don't know where they pulled this guy from or, you know, he just looks like a, he kind of, he has this like pug nose. He's like kind of this really pugnacious, uh, roughneck character. And uh, I mean, it just feels like it's totally modeled on on that. And then the old man kind of who's never seen, I believe, this kind of all powerful old man uh, contr- politician controlling the strings of the crime is definitely um, based on a, a mayor at the time. uh Big Bill Thompson, who was like this completely corrupt uh, mayor in Capone's pocket or maybe the other way around. And uh, so, like, there's definitely uh, some reality in the movie. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out if McQuig was in on the take or not for many parts. I couldn't get there. Relate- like him and Scarcy's relationship was very confusing to me, where it was like, it seems like they were kind of friendly with each other, but. There was definitely obviously a rivalry and like I couldn't until like I really never came down like, wait, is McQuig kind of on the on the take or is he just kind of he looks away at the end of the movie? And like, I I don't know. But I like the kind of like I can't beat crime and like it's kind of overwhelming. It it felt like um, I don't know. Yeah, I I feel like I think you're over. You're giving it too much credit that it's that complicated. I, I do think that the way they introduce these two together is is very like they were were they childhood friends? Like did they go? Yeah, to- yeah, I know. Right? It's just left out. Like they definitely should have said something like that. Yeah, there's like parts of the movie where it's just like I don't know what's going on. I don't know what these relationships are. Yeah. You know, like the DA comes in. I don't even know. Who, I mean, like, wait, is this the DA? Who is this guy? There's like a lawyer, like a, a mob lawyer that shows up, but I'm like. Is that the mob lawyer or is that Scarcy's brother? They kind of look the same, you know? They're kind of like this reedy-looking, uh, mustachioed uh, fellows. I, I, there was parts of the movie that I did find confusing, definitely. For me, it's just that the, they're, they're relying too much on stereotypes right from the beginning. I mean, it definitely has like a pulp feel. Like they use the gritty street dialogue when those title cards come up. It's yeah. uh, 
you know, it. I can see this as an early, I can appreciate it as an early prototype gangster movie. Uh, but like, they're just, there's nothing for me to sink my teeth into. Women come across poorly in this. There's the one female character. There's only one woman, isn't there? Yeah, Marie Prevost as Helen Hayes. But I mean, you know, what's his name? Nick Nick Scarcy. He says something along the lines of like, women are uh, they'll 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 bring you to ruin. Or yeah, you know. yeah, no, he definitely hates women. Yeah, he and that's his downfall, right? Because then again, there's that other confusing scene at the end of the movie where Helen somehow tricks. Uh, Scarcy into admitting that he killed that cop or something like that. And like, oh, I guess women are his downfall. You know, he's definitely like suspicious. You know, I don't know. He's he's definitely suspicious of, of women and he wants to keep his brother away from women. And uh, yeah, and if his brother had listened, then they would have never gotten into that whole problem and the movie would never have happened. So, you know, again, that was very confusing. Woman. Yeah. It was confusing. I definitely give you that it's it's very confusing. And like there was that newspaper uh, man who was like, I guess the romantic lead. He kind of emerged as the romantic lead in the middle of the movie. Um, and I couldn't keep that guy straight. Yeah. I didn't know what that guy was doing or who what what was his it with the sleepy news reporter, too. There's like one news reporter. Who always he was drunk. I feel like it was a drunk. There were two news reporters at the beginning of the movie that I thought were going to be like big parts of the movie. And then they turned out to like, they just disappeared. At a certain... They were like comic relief, basically. Yeah, they kind of, and they make fun of the new newbie newspaper guy's hat, which I like that scene where they're like, oh, nice hat. And he's wearing this big, this uh, very larger than normal fedora. And they're kind okay. of on that. That was probably uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie. I don't know. I just, I guess I just, I totally get your points. And I, I found it just as confusing as you did. But I guess I guess I just thought it was kind of like a cool pulpy movie that wasn't too long. Yeah, was it too long? You saw this the runtime, and you were just like, "That's it." That's yeah, it. I mean, uh, the circus is an hour, right? Circus is pretty brief too. And uh, as is Chang, yeah, they're pretty brief. yeah. We got a couple. We had a couple short ones there in a row. Oh, I love this, the short. This movie was lost. This also was lost for a long time, and. Yeah. They found it in Howard Hughes' personal collection after he uh, passed yep. away. I read that. That's interesting. Yeah, He's and then the, the, the director is uh, the director of the movie. What is it? Uh, what's his Louis name? Milestone. Louis Milestone. Louis Milestone. Yeah. He directed. Uh, he directed the most dangerous game. He directed the Ocean's Eleven, the one with the Rat Pack. You oh. know, like so he went on and and made uh, some some interesting movies. I remember I watched. Um, no, did he direct Most Dangerous Game or was that someone else? All Quiet on the Western Front. That's oh, yeah. He wins the Oscar. I think for is that next year? No, thirty one. The third Oscars. I think 30, wins, that wins. Yeah, yeah. And I, I saw that movie. My dad showed me that movie when I was quite young, and I remember liking it. Slash was very bored by it, but you know, I'm going to see it in two months. But I saw the recent All Quiet on the Western Front, and I thought it was okay. Oh yeah, yeah. I didn't see it. Um, I don't care. It wasn't my pick for best picture this year. No. I, uh, yeah, I, uh, he also directed Mutiny on the Bounty, apparently, but Brando, Mar uh, Marlon Brando took over, like, the entire process and kind of directed the movie on his own, which he was wont to do. Um, and he was labeled a communist. We talked about that earlier by the House American, Un-American Service Community. 
he was labeled a communist, but he wasn't blacklisted. He continued to work, but the work kind of dried up and it wasn't very lucrative or artistically interesting. Mm-hmm. Gray listed. He was gray listed. Is that a real term? Or did you just make that up? No, I think it is. I mean, it, well, I don't know if it's a real term, but it's it, it, I think it's I read it somewhere where it's just kind of like this idea of like. You still have the stink of being a communist, but they they can't really prove anything. So they uh, they let you work, but they're not going to give you the good stuff and your career is going to suffer. And then you'll probably drink yourself to death or or whatever. Let's uh, move on. Let's move on. Okay. Well, let's keep let's let's go let's let's not put these in a definitive order for anyone right now because I want I do want to be surprised by what your best picture is at the end. So I'm just gonna finish out the uh, outstanding picture category because we've already talked about Seventh Heaven and the Racket. So why don't we talk about Wings, the other movie that was in that category? Okay. And bang that one out. Wings, directed by William A. Wellman, who was a pilot in World War One. Starring Clara Bow, she's got top billing on this as Mary Preston, although she's not in the movie. Yeah, Yeah. uh, she's not. No, no. Uh, Clara Bow, again, you didn't see Babylon. Well, I'm just going to keep asking if you saw Babylon throughout this. Uh, She played a character based on Clara Bow in that movie. Uh, Oh, the girl, the woman who plays Harley Quinn. Dang it, woman who plays Harley Quinn. Oh, uh, the woman who was in. Wolf and Barbie. And she's in Barbie. Oh, yeah. I can't think of the name right now. I know you're talking about. Yeah, you know. And you people at home know who are talking Cut about. Cut this out and then I'll look it up. What's her name? All right. Well, we just got the answer. We had to take a break uh, and run to the library. And I, I had to check one of my books and it's uh, Margot Robbie is the actor, of course. There we go. Cyrus, I want to thank you. I'm glad we had you and your extensive book collection. Don't, don't thank me. Thank my extensive book collection. My yeah. E. BC. Yeah, you are always talking about that book collection. You're like, ah, that book collection. And you're like getting, getting <laughs> higher and higher. I'm actually sitting on some of it right now. Yeah. Uh it's impressive. It is impressive. Thank you. Buddy Rogers and Richard Arlen play uh the two pals in wings. They're it's basically top gun. I mean, the the story here. You got the Iceman and and Maverick, and they're competing for one woman's affections, although the woman that they're Competing for her affection. It's gone after two minutes in the movie. She never shows up again. And she's very clear about which one she likes. Like, right. Yeah, yeah, there's no, she's like, oh, I like, was it David Armstrong? That's the one I like. I like David. Yes. The rich, David, the rich one. Yeah. There's a rich one. And then there's, is it Jack? Jack. uh, Yeah. Jack Powell. Jack Powell. And And he's he's just the jerk. Yeah. He's a jerk. Yeah, he's uh, and he's fixing up a car. He's like an auto mechanic or something like that. But yeah, the whole movie is just a a long kind of it's a war movie, and then he slowly realizes he loves Clara Bow. Um, yeah. Well, because he read the note by the end. Uh, there, there's a there's a MacGuffin, I guess, in this movie of a photo of the girl that he thinks that he loves, but the photo was meant for his buddy, David Armstrong. She even wrote on the back for you, like, love you, something like that. Oh, is that what it was? I couldn't figure out what was going on in that scene. I mean, I don't know if you want to discuss it. 
because we're kind of going out of context. That's the end of the movie. But there's this the scene where so he loves Jack loves uh, Sylvia. Sylvia doesn't love him. She loves David Armstrong. And David and Jack are like best buddies. They're war buddies. And they start out rivals, but then they very quickly become, you know, comrades. And then there's a scene like you refer to at the end of the movie where Jack is like, oh, I'm doing this all for this, the woman I love. And it's my good luck charm is this locket that my love gave to me. And it's Sylvia. And David's like, oh, boy, I love Sylvia and she loves me. I already know that. So this guy's a fool and he's being uh, cucked. <laughs> but uh, um, but then the locket falls and breaks or something. And then the photo falls out. But it has on the photo that Jack had, it has a love message to David. And I couldn't figure out what was going on in that. Yeah, See, he. I guess Jack had never taken it out of the locket, so he never read the back of the... I feel like they could have thrown in a line of dialogue at the beginning of that movie to kind of seed that, because I could not figure out what, the, what was going on at that, in that scene, except that Jack was very mad. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have a problem following it, but I just thought, like, this guy, what a jerk this guy is, like, you know, because she's basically like, uh, no, it's not, and he's like, oh, oh, I'm taking it, and that's it, you know, this is, I'm going to keep this with me every day while I'm there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then David had a little teddy bear uh, as a as a as a good luck uh, charm, right? Yeah, he gets the he he takes the teddy bear. There's a dramatic scene of him at home saying goodbye to his parents. And uh, again, this is our second movie where a man uh, kisses his mother square on the mouth. Uh, yeah, very, it was a thing. Yeah, I don't know. This movie has a. I, re- I read this after I didn't realize it even while watching it, but they said it has the first uh, two men kiss at the end, which you can say is brotherly love. The kiss I remember the most is the one to his mother on the lips. I was just like, yeah, I actually do not remember either one of those uh, kisses yeah. that you just referred to. I don't I don't even remember them kissing the, the two friends kissing at the end. Oh, yeah, he does. When he's laying on the table and he's, uh, you know, he just shot his buddy down after Jack murders him. Yeah, he just he's hugging them, and I think right before he dies, he gives him a big. Yeah, that's the whole thing. It's like they're buddies and buddies, and then they have this fight, and then there's this misunderstanding in midair, and there's dog fight, and Jack shoots and kill shoots down David and kills him, and everyone's very forgiving of this. I feel like though I guess it's a it's a understanding because David's in a German plane at the time. Yeah, but David can see Jack. He's like waving frantically in the. In the yeah, play, like he's oh, not shooting. See your buddy David, and David is just like zoned in, does not see that, and just shoots him down. Um, uh, yeah. in a bloodthirsty uh, rage. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's a it's an interesting movie. The special effects, I think, are fantastic. They actually shot all of these things in the air. Um, yeah, if you've seen on the- on, on actual battlefields too, I believe, right. Yeah, I think they were where where these some of these things happened is yeah. what it was like French uh, fields. Sure. Uh, the guy playing Richard Arlen was also a pilot at the time. I think Buddy was the only one. Jack Powell, the main guy, was the only one who hadn't flown a plane before. So they had to teach him to fly a plane because they had to have that camera shooting right at his. Actually, the, the actors really flew the planes then. Yeah, so uh, those actors were really in the air, which is impressive. That's and great. they had to film on cloudy days, which if you saw The Aviator, where Howard Hughes was trying to make that Hell's Angel movie in the Scorsese's The Aviator, yeah. and in Howard Hughes' actual movie, Hell's Angels, he's 
obsessed with filming these dog fights. And the reason why he knew he needed clouds is because wings had the problem of they shot all these scenes with no clouds and they look not dramatic at all. And you can't tell spatial relations in the air. So they'd have to wait till these cloudy days to get the planes up there and uh, do these complex technical shots of sure. action. Which... Yeah, I, I, those stuff that that was really cool. I um, yeah, that was that was that was good. I liked all that. But again, I I, I found it okay. Clara Bow, like you said, was like completely underused and just like just like I guess comic relief, you know, and like. You know, I like her. She's got uh in the movie in this movie, she's got what my mother-in-law would say. She has hair like Zazu Pitts. She's like, Oh, if you're looking uh if you're looking uh disheveled, you're like, Oh, you look like Zazu Pitts. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And so I had to look up Zazu Pitts, and she was another kind of silent movie actress who had this crazy hair. So huh. I just kept thinking about Zazu Pitts when I saw Clara Bow in this movie. And uh I don't know where my mother-in-law got that from, but she says it all the time. And she said, Clarabo, let me just consult my uh, one of my uh, books. Yeah. Uh, she says, Wing, about the movie, she says, Wings is a man's picture and I'm just a whipped cream on top of the pie, which That's is awesome. definitely, definitely true. And she was the biggest star in the movie, I would imagine, right? Yeah, she was pretty, she had... Just been in this movie called The It Girl a couple years earlier, and that's why she, she defi- was defined as the It Girl, right? She became she like, the It Girl, and she actually before her in the silent era, like the vamp seductress, like woman with dark black makeup, that was like the big for actresses trying to break in. They were all playing those types of roles, and then Clara Bow comes along and playing this kind of midwestern tomboy, and that became the next kind of big thing. And now you see a lot of actresses kind of aping that after Clara Bow. Right. Who also had a tragic uh, ending. I think I borrowed one of your books, and I still need to give it back. Where uh, I read that Clara Bow, like, had she had some woman in charge of her money, apparently, and the woman uh, she, she Clara Bow started dating a new guy, and he wanted to fire the woman, and he accused her of stealing money from Clara Bow, and she might have actually been. Uh, but there's a big scandalous trial. And this woman ended up writing a tell-all book on Clara Bow, and she wrote all of these horrible things, like that Clara Bow had slept with an entire football team. And people believed it, sort of like the Richard Gere uh, hamster story. It was like the story everyone just associated with Clara Bow. They were like, she has slept with a football team. And it ruined her career, and like she fought it and tried to say, no, this never happened. But you know, once you say some weird specific lie like that, it's hard to make people not you know, take the genie out of the bottle. So uh, she, I think soon, a few years after this, she wasn't acting really in Hollywood very oh, much. I, I, again, I liked her in the movie. I liked all her, I thought she brought a lot of life to the movie. Mm-hmm. Did you again, notice the famous cameo in this movie? Was it Alfred Hitchcock? Uh, no, good, good guess, good guess, but no. Uh, Gary Cooper played uh, Cadet White. In the scene, there's a scene where they're both at training camp. Is he playing the guy who immediately is killed? Yeah, like, he plays that cool guy who's scary. just like, well, gonna go train. <laughs> yeah, like, so weird. That scene is very, very, very funny to me. Because they're all talking. I didn't know that was Gary Cooper. That's funny. And uh, and then he's like, yeah, I don't need a good luck charm. I'm a, if you die, you die. I'm pretty fatalistic. And then he goes out of the tent. And two seconds later, someone comes back. He's like, yeah, he crashed. I'm like, wait, what? What the hell happened? 
I wasn't even sure if that was like, was he shot down in combat or he just like crashed his plane the minute after he took off? Yeah, I don't remember. I feel like they were at training camp, but maybe may, I'd have to maybe rewatch. Yeah, they were at training camp. So I'm like, how did he die? And why did he die so quickly? <laughs> you know, it was very funny. That's yeah. funny. That that's uh, Gary Cooper. I, I didn't. I don't think I've seen any Gary Cooper movies. My Gary Cooper references Tony Soprano always saying, why aren't men like Gary Cooper anymore? Uh, my, mine is from the song uh, Putting on the Ritz, where uh, they mention that. I know that. And I'm aware that he is a movie star. But you're right. I can't think of a movie I've seen him in. So. He was a Western. Did he do Westerns, maybe? I feel like he did. I feel like he's a romantic lead. I could say that, maybe. Sure. Uh, well, anyway, he was pretty pretty manly because Tony, yes. Tony Soprano loved him. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I thought the movie was exciting. And obviously it was this big production. And it, it felt like a Best Picture movie. Like it felt like almost like you said, like a modern Best Picture movie. It's full of action. It's got this kind of love triangle going on. It's got drama and... Yeah, it's definitely, I could see it. And then it has that, we didn't even talk about it. I mean, it has that shot, yeah. which is, I feel like it's actual legacy, where they had this, the cinematographer, um, what's his name? Let me check, look at my books. Harry Perry, uh, he set up this machine that was like hung, kind of like a camera, and it was like a track that, so the tracking shot is, we should probably describe that, yeah. is the dolly shot, is it's in this um kind of moulin rouge like um venue where everyone's partying and drinking champagne and they all the soldiers are on leave and it's like this real jazzy atmosphere and the camera goes down this series of tables right down the middle of the of uh, the tables and there are all these actors on either side of it and they're all kind of uh uh chatting and laughing and drinking meanwhile the camera very steadily pushes in all the way to the end of the series of tables where jack is sitting drunk out of his mind and uh it's really really impressive and it's really um had to be i imagine very hard to to shoot hard to choreograph yeah and it's a really cool cool shot but again you could take it for granted because you're like yeah yeah they do that all the time now yeah, but, they they had they have, the actors had to like all they they must have run that a ton of times to get that just perfectly right. But I think that scene then gets I don't want to say upstaged, but by that whole bubble cartoon bubbles thing, which ran for like the next ten minutes. Something yeah, they, they really like he was so drunk that he was seeing bubbles everywhere, and there's this scene where he's shaking bubbles out of women, and he's yeah. like, "Oh, what about you? Do you have a lot of bubbles in you?" And the woman's like, don't shake me. I don't have any bubbles. And he's like, what about you? And he grabs Clara Bow and he starts shaking bubbles out of her. And uh, she loves it or something. <laughs> and uh, uh, shake her till you, she likes it is the is yep. the uh, <laughs> is the philosophy there. But yeah, there is that weird animated bubbles scene that does go on for a really long period of time. I um, didn't find much on like what inspired them to do that like so i'm thinking animation at the time one of the things uh in doing research for this video was like walt i was thinking walt disney he's going to be one of the biggest uh academy award winners of just for mostly for shorts going forward and special awards but steamboat willie had just come out at some point i don't know if it came out after this movie though because i'm wondering what makes you while you're making wings 
decide, hey, let's have cartoon bubbles appear. Like we'll draw them right on the film. Like it just seems like a weird. Where did that come from? Like I, 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 I didn't read comedy. it. I think there was. I think the whole thing was like supposed to be like a, a comedic kind of um, intermission between like all the serious war stuff and like. I don't know what the idea came from. I thought it was kind of interesting, but it did go on too. It went on forever. It's like they realized, oh, we can do this and it'll look kind of cool. And then they were like, well, let's just do it. Do it and do it and do it and do it. And it just doesn't escalate. And then he goes back to his room drunkenly with Clara Bow. And she's like trying to, you know, express her affection for him, but he's too drunk. And that leads us to this other part of the movie, which is kind of groundbreaking. There's nudity in this movie. Like Clara Bow is kind of a little bit naked in the movie very briefly. And I don't know, is that the first time there was nudity in a movie? Or- I, you know, I read that it was one of the first widely released films to show nudity. I didn't even catch it again on first viewing. I saw a still afterwards where you can totally see. Oh, I bet you saw us. I, I know how you saw us. Well, I'm like, I don't remember this at all. I'm like, where do you, if you're a silent viewer at the time, that watching this in the theater, if you're in the theater and you're watching this movie back in 1927, 28, whatever, I don't know that you would know, okay, I saw her boob, you know, like you you know, she's undressing and that uh, in a, in and of itself is yeah, uh, saucy. Yeah. Saucy. But uh, yeah, I don't know that the, the nudity, I wonder if that was an intentional thing they put in the movie or if they just didn't, you know. Well, I think it was intentional. I think they put it in the movie and like, this is pre Hayes code, so I guess they could get away with it. So, um, yeah, and the fact that it was Clara Bow, who was like, you know, a, a huge star at the time, it must have been like, you know, all the gentlemen in the audience and, uh, you know, uh, must have been uh, pretty thrilled by that. I think she had done like nude photography too. I think she was kind of like a person who was very comfortable to do do nudity like you know was had no qualms about it uh, yeah at least in the early stage before her reputation was slandered yeah it was um yeah so anyway those are kind of like two big thing i think those are the two i mean that dolly shot i see that yeah um all the time and i see it kind of like talked about and then when it came up in the movie i'm like oh that's from this yeah. movie I, did, I didn't know that like like oh that's that's interesting yeah, I've seen that. I saw it on TikTok, I think, at one point, because people will just post random, like, you know, they'll post, hey, it's Busta Keaton doing something crazy. And then they post that shot, at, oh, you know, okay. and then you see, you know, so I'd seen that shot before. But yeah, it is. It's 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 really a breathtakingly good shot. So. Yeah, no, it's the, it's the highlight of the movie for me. Yeah, but you no, know, it's it's a it's an OK movie. One stunt person died making this movie and another one pilot broke his neck after he had to crash the plane uh, multiple times. All of these crashes and things are really are happening in the, in the movie. That's the other. There's no special effects. These aren't miniatures like every plane in this is actually being crashed yeah. into something. And that. I don't know, I guess it, it makes it look good. Yeah, they didn't have any regulations as far as that is concerned. It's just like, you know, you're, 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 you may die. And that was just part of the, I don't know, part of uh, the process of making movies back then. They didn't have any regard for animals and stunt people. 
And even putting those real actors up in planes, that would, I mean, other than Tom Cruise, that would like never happen. You know, like that, it's just like, I just, the insurance would be crazy now. You wouldn't be able to. Yeah, that Jack Powell, Buddy Rogers kid who'd never been in a plane, I heard that he like almost, he threw up after every take. Like he was like violently ill during all of the filming for this. Man, that is insane. Moving on to. What's next, Kenneth? Let's hit, let's hit, you know what? Let's do King Vidor's The Crowd from 1928, 89 minutes, uh, starring Eleanor Boardman as Mary Sims and James Murray as John Sims. Did you notice how many women are called Mary in these movies? There's like four or five movies where the woman, the female lead is Mary. And there's a couple of Jacks too. Like, it's just like, they just went with the meat and potatoes names like Mary, Jack, John, you know, like this hey, guy's a little foreign, Chico. Yeah, Chico. <laughs> yeah. Famously French name. Yeah, Chico. Yeah. Uh, so the crowd by King Vidor. Uh, this one, this one to me is very interesting because this movie has never received a DVD release. I never received a Blu-ray release. I don't even think it's gotten a VHS release. And it was nominated for uh, Best uh, Unique and Artistic Picture. And I'm going to let me spoil something for people. It lost to what did it lose to? Sunrise. Sunrise. And let me tell. So when they picked Best Pictures in 1929, it was left to the five heads of those departments of the actors, directors, uh, writers, uh, technicians, and uh, a missing one. Those five, the five heads elected people from that, those departments would pick the best picture. And what would happen is because the first year is Louis B. Mayer uh, kind of supervised. So they picked for best artistic picture, the crowd to win. They chose the crowd. Louis B. Mayer, who his company put the crowd out, MGM, mm-hmm. said no, he did not want the crowd to win best picture. He wanted to give it to one of the other studios in a show of politics that they're all inclusive and he also didn't like the crowd because of the negative ending, but that's a different story. So yeah. Louis B. Mayer came in, kept these guys up all night and wouldn't let them leave until they agreed that Sunrise was the best unique and artistic picture. And they finally relented and Sunrise got that Oscar. And the thing that is interesting about the politics of that is that Sunrise is available over my shoulder on Blu-ray. It was the first silent movie released on Blu-ray it has great commentary. It has all sorts of special features. It's been restored. It looks beautiful. Meanwhile, The Crowd, the movie that should have won, never been restored, only available through the Internet Archive. No other way to watch it. That's a shame. I, I agree. I'm really surprised that this doesn't get some sort of criterion thing. But Yeah, anything. Like at this point, anything. You know, we put it on a VHS, you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I don't think they're going to do that, Ken. Yeah, they won't do that. But uh, yeah, so you want to talk about it? Yeah, I thought this movie was uh, this movie for me. I watching the first half of this movie, I was very uh, I, I was almost ready to turn it off because you're following this guy, a Jack Sims, other Jack, or John Sims, John Sims, Johnny, Johnny Sims, yeah, Johnny Sims, and he's just like everything's like you know he's told from being young that he's g- going to have this great he's going to be somebody. Well, he tells himself that. Well, his father says that when he's born. He's like, oh, he's really going to be somebody. Someday. Yeah, right. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. But it's almost like, 
you know, he's got this arrogance to him and the movie continues on and he just kind of lucks into a wife, lucks into these situations where you're like not on his side. I don't feel like I'm on his side till that point. And then somewhere in the middle, things start to turn and it becomes like this other story, other movie. It's not like this hero's journey uh, in in, in New York. It becomes like your journey, the real man's journey in New York. And like, you know, it has this very tragic ending. Yeah, common people in a collective struggle was like definitely a theme in this movie. And uh, yeah, I, I actually think you're not supposed to like Johnny Sims. I, I actually feel like the movie definitely has this kind of, you know, it sets Johnny up to be like the 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 bad guy. Where at the beginning of the movie, like you said, he like meets this lady and they have this very weird date where they're driving around on a bus and making fun of. Oh, that's it. So yeah. they they drive on a bus and they see a clown on the street and he's like laughing at the clown he's like "Ah, that guy's a loser (laughs) not like me i'm a winner and then at the end of the movie he becomes that clown you know he becomes that so good that juggling street clown and like the fact that it's seeded in the beginning of the movie like it just indicates that they know where this you're not really supposed to side with them and then immediately after they get married who's the woman's is it mary johnny and mary it's mary yeah um, and uh, he mar- he becomes like this petulant jerk, like immediately. Like it's just, and I think after that point, maybe that's the point you're talking about. It really starts like loving it, the movie, like humiliates Johnny like over and over again. And you know, Mary's very patient in the style of women <laughs> act like characters in the day. Like she's just like she's sick of him, and but then he like says. He gives her some flowers or some crap, and she's like, "Oh, Johnny, you do you do love me after all?" And like mushing faces then next uh, into each other. But um, I just definitely felt like it was definitely a very subtle movie for the times. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it also felt very ahead of its time, just in that you know it was like this very existential. Yeah. Here, you know, look at people that was you don't expect from movies because it's not glamorous and it's not this, uh, you know, high romance, you know, is and no, they still no, it's, not. It, it's none of these things. And, you know, reading a little bit on the backstory of this, like King Vito had just made a really popular movie, a uh, war movie, and he was basically given like carte blanche, do whatever you want to do. Hell, and, you could not have this movie. Hell that he was just like given full reign because there's like amazing sequences in this movie that are that are just great and the sets are just amazing hey this is kenny from the editing booth one more time and i just wanted to say that the movie king vidor did before this was called the big parade we just showed a picture of it on the youtube channel so this is for our podcast listeners and i also wanted to take the time here to mention that louis b mayer referred to this movie the crowd as the toilet movie because it was one of the first movies to show an actual toilet in it. Just another indignity this movie suffered at the hands of Louis B. Mayer. And now back to the show. Yeah, that shot at the beginning of the going up the... First of all, the shots of New York. Like, even I wrote in my notes at the beginning, I'm just like, just these early shots of just New York City, like, at the time, is just, like, amazing to watch the movie just to see that, you know? And to see what the streets looked like and, and... 
then that one shot going up the building and then focusing on the room. And then it's just like a bunch of tables of workers in the room and he's just one of them. Yeah. You know, like that whole sequence I thought was great. Yeah. The collect that room is very, um, Kafka-esque. It reminded me of a shot in the trial where there's a similar kind of shot of, you know, uh, faceless workers in a, in a, I think it's in the trial. Anyway, it's, um, it's definitely like it, it, it hits home where it's just like the crowd, like that's the theme of the movie. Like you're either with the crowd and you're flowing with the crowd or you're the minute you come out, uh, uh, you know, the minute you come step out of step with the crowd, then, uh, you're you know you're lost and like there's this title card that says hold on let me just look at one of my books i have to turn a page um man i just love the smell of these old books uh the crowd laughs with you always but will cry for you for only a day and like yeah i think that's very thematic especially considering the last shot of the movie where it's just a simple, it's so simple, like this shot. And they're just, Mary and Johnny are in the audience and there's this comedy and like this, this is this pullout shot of uh, the crowd just laughing in unison. And he's become part of the crowd again. And it's like laughing with you. And it's like this, this joyous part of the, which, which I don't, you said the movie had a negative ending. Like, I feel like it was a very, I mean, it, you know, it was an interesting and I think it had a kind of this optimistic ending where you can, the crowd can be, bring you great joy, but it can also give you, it can, you can also be a lost in it and uh, isolated within it. So I definitely. Well, I think the movie doesn't leave it clear that they're like the A, that he's back together with her. No, No, you're right. Yeah. It's it's kind of like I got these tickets, you know. Can we just at least do this, and then you know, maybe you can. She's right. She's about to leave him, yeah, right? She's about he's to leave. A vacuum cleaner. Yeah, because he's a clown. He comes in, and uh, it, it's so funny where he's like, "Oh, I just got this job as a juggling street clown. Uh, it's great. I'm I'm doing selling. Uh, it's an advertisement for a restaurant, and then." Uh, he like, oh, look at the handful of change I made. And yeah. she's like, now, now you're not going to leave me, right? And she's like, yeah, I'm still going to leave you. And then he's like, oh, but what about these movie tickets? And she's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, and there's so many great moments of just like ordinary life, sort of him, them getting their first apartment and the, the fights they start to get into. And, uh, you know, them, what it's like being in these, you know, it's not a, this isn't a glamorous Hollywood apartment set in New York. They're in like this tiny little thing with the L train right outside the yeah, window. Yeah, yeah, the train, which is a really cool thing. And like the bed yeah. that they got to put into the um, wall. Yeah. yeah, I like there's a scene where they're getting into some argument and then the train goes by and he has to stop talking yeah. because the train is going by. And obviously it's a silent movie, but you kind of can read that whole thing. And it's just like, it's yeah. so well done. And uh yeah. And then there's this weird thing where he wants to be an ad man and he makes that he he it's such a great little part of the movie where you kind of forget about it. Like in the middle of the movie, he writes this ad where apparently he gets five hundred dollars for writing this ad for like this this cleaning supply thing. And it's just like sleight of hand magic cleaner. I don't even know what he wrote. Like it's yeah. just like he wrote this ad and he wins five hundred dollars and then 
for some reason, he doesn't follow up on that. He doesn't do more ads. But then at the end of the movie, when they're sitting in the movie theater, Mary like looks at the paper and says, like, oh, look, it's your ad. And he gets all happy about it. And he shows it to the guy next to him and said, this is my ad. You know, yeah. the guy's way more interested than I would be. But uh, I just found that little moment to be really, really well done. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think the scene at the beach with the two kids, that felt really, I mean, that felt like it's not a Mad Men, like you could see, where he's going to take the kid to pee. He's trying to play the, was it the ukulele? Yeah, yeah, that ukulele scene. Yeah, And he's like, the kid and the wife's trying to cook on the beach, which is that, that, she she was in over her head before she started there, because she's trying to make like bacon and coffee, like on the beach, on a crowded beach. Yeah. And she had like a cake just sitting in the sand, like a chocolate cake. (laughs) <laughs> and the boy ends up kicking sand up into bring a chocolate cake to the beach, Mary. But even just like the kids running around, like it just felt so like almost like a documentary in some ways. Like he's like drawing from real memories uh, and making this movie. So you, yeah. you get the sense like, yeah, this is a guy's vision, like an auteur director's vision, not just a, a standard studio script. And I, I thought that was all very surprising to me when I suddenly started connecting with the movie about midway through. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I like that scene because he's being very annoying with that ukulele. And I'm like, well, I'm kind of glad this is, uh, there has no sound in this picture because it sounds awful. And then it turns out that, yeah, his wife is also annoyed by this thing. She's just like, will you stop playing that, you know, uh, crazy, uh, ukulele. Um, there's another scene in the movie where like, so he, they have a couple of kids, right. Oh, oh, they're in the midst of a huge fight because he won't take a job from his in-laws because he's too proud. And they have this big fight and he's like a total jerk. And uh, then then she's like, oh, I'm pregnant. And then he's like, "Okay, I love you now because you're pregnant, you know, and then they have a kid and then they have another kid. I guess there's like a a time jump. Yeah. The youngest daughter. Uh, the day he wins the five hundred dollars, and then they're so happy. Uh, the youngest daughter gets hit by a car and killed, and then this is they they do this um, effect where it's like, you know, they they have I don't even know how they did it. It's like this super. It's like this kind of the kid is like superimposed on the screen so they can show the 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 car running over her without actually running over the little girl. It's yeah. very, I don't know if you've watched Quantum Leap a lot, but it's a very like Al from Quantum Leap effect when they used to like walk through, uh, you know, a pool table or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I didn't, so I don't know that, but yeah, well, um, it's the, your your uh, listeners and watchers who have seen Quantum Leap will go, oh, yeah, it's, really? like, yeah. Yeah, it's like Quantum Leap a little bit. But yeah, anyway, that effect was really cool. And there was a set, a lot of really great effects, like these montages and swirling kind of like, like nightmares of the city. And like it, 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 um, yeah. So apparently this guy, James Murray, who played the uh, John Sims had a tragic life story as well. Uh, He was a drunk in real life. He had uh, tried to be in a bunch of other movies and he kept getting fired. And then finally, at one point, King Vidor wanted him to be in a sequel to this. They were going to make a sequel to the crowd called Our Daily Bread, where mm-hmm. Jack, John and Mary uh, moved to a farm and it was going to be about them trying to be farmers, I think. And he okay. he found uh, 
Murray on the street, he was panhandling for change. He was like a skid row bum. And uh, he Wait, the star of this movie, they thought he, he, he was this movie, yeah. he, as a panhandler. Yeah. And he was like, I don't need your handouts, or at least according to one of the stories. And so he wouldn't do it. And then like a, a year or two later, they he died uh, trying to get money off of people on the do- down by the docks and doing this trick where he pretends to fall into the river, except he actually fell into the river and he drowned. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah, it's a totally uh, nuts. Wow. I, yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, he was good in the movie. I uh, I found him annoying, which I think he's supposed to be. I think he's pretty obnoxious. I think There's what? Go ahead. I think, you know, I think you're right on that. I think he is. Cause I think that they want you to find him annoying. And then it make, gives the story more power later on because the presenting him is so as like good as the hero, but something about him is just, you want to punch him or something. The first half of the movie. Yeah. One of my favorite parts of the movie. And it's like kind of like a little bit of a mini theme is like, he has this like, he can't wash his face without someone like commenting on it. And he's like, oh, this yeah. really, he's read this really aggressive face washer. And there's this scene where like, like he's just washing his face after work or something. And all his coworkers are going by like, what are you washing your face? Sims are washing them up. Scrub your face, Sims. And he keeps getting really mad. And then it happens again later when he's trying to wash his face uh, on his honeymoon or something. And he's washing his face and people are like, like giving him the side eye. I just found that to be a very amusing uh, <laughs> part of the movie where he couldn't wash his face in peace. I think that first scene was meant to show how like, you know, kind of when you start melt into a job, when you start doing it all the time, like there's little sayings at the job that people just do. Yeah. Like, yeah, sure. You know, and all that. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a good point. And maybe pretty soon he would be doing that to the next new guy. Like, hey, yeah. wash his face, you know. It just feels like this movie is operating at a level way beyond 1929. And it's just like, it's got this subtlety in the movie that that I did not see in any other movie that we watched. Yeah, it's, uh, I really liked, I do I do want to stress, I really liked Eleanor Boardman, the, the girl playing Mary Sims too. Like she had yeah. this very natural style that again, felt modern, like not over, not overacting. She felt very, you know, sympathetic and realistic. I really enjoyed every scene the two of these were in. Yeah, absolutely. I was pissed in the scene where he's yelling at her, where they get in that big fight before she calls him back to be pregnant. I think that's where I realized I like this movie. I was like, he's screaming. He's being such a jerk to her about everything. And he's just like, yeah, he's like, why, why don't you tell me when the milk is full or something? Yeah. And he's so, so mad about everything. He's like, marriage isn't a word. It's a sentence. And then he slams the door and leaves. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and then she has this moment of like panic of being like, she's uh, wants to leave, but then she doesn't know what to do. And then she decides, oh, I got to tell him I'm pregnant. And at first I'm like, is she making this up? But I think realizing how emotionally I was getting involved in the characters at that point, because I'm like, leave them, just go, just get the hell away. This totally, guy totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was already wrapped into, I didn't know it, but I'm wrapped into the movie now. And now I'm like, I need to see, you know, how these, these two are going to make out at the end. Yeah. And, you know, he attempts to kill himself in front of his child. He throws the ball down the docks. 
that scene, he's gonna just throw himself in front of a yeah. train. And that was another sentimental scene where the kid is like, like, I still believe in your pop. <laughs> yeah, that scene where he's like wandering around drunk, but also somehow his son is there too. Yeah, he took him with him. He's like, oh, Pop, I want to be just like you. I'm like, what are you talking about, kid? He like, he's like, at his nadir, you know, he's just like, he's losing it. And the kid still has faith in him. And that faith kind of gives him a little boost and allows him uh, the confidence to become a juggling street clown. And when he goes to become a juggling clown, he leaves his son sitting on a bench in a cemetery. Like, That's he's right. like, hey, you sit here. <laughs> like, I'll be working over here. Interesting that it's staged in a cemetery a little bit too. Like obviously that's there's some sort of subtext there, maybe. Yeah, again, maybe probably. I mean, like you said, it is a, a operating on different levels. Uh I found it to be funny too. Like there's this great, very funny scene where he's meeting his in-laws for the first time and they they hate him. And uh because he's like they can sense a they can smell a loser, you know. Yeah. And Mary says like, ah, she's trying to keep the conversation going. And she's like, ah, Johnny knows a trick. Come on, let's do a trick, Johnny. And Johnny's like, well, I don't want to do this trick right now. And he's like, no, no, do it, do it. So he does this trick where he's like, he takes his wrist and like pretend like he can twist it all the way around or something like that. And he kind of like does this, like that's his trick. And it just cuts <laughs> cuts to the in-laws and they're just like completely deadpan, just like staring at him. And this is like this long sequence of him <laughs> bending his wrist. I found it super funny. Yeah. Uh, and just to go back to that, the directing, like there's a few scenes in this movie where he just lets the camera like linger on these actors and there lingers on his uncomfortable awkwardness in that scene. Or there's a scene where Mary... Um, it lingers on Mary. Is it like maybe after she leaves him? Oh, that is it. Like yeah. where she leaves him and they give her like this long, long shot of her kind of, you know, kind of going through this like series of emotions from like anger to sadness to like really big despair and to like realization. And then she runs to the, it's just like this very long shot. That's just her. And maybe it's common for the day, but like, it just, it just feels like really, uh, you know, really um, well done. And she's great. And she's just great in that scene. Yeah, the stuff at Niagara Falls, too, just felt like you're actually watching somebody's vacation, like honeymoon uh, footage. Like that stuff was all great. There was just a lot of surprising things in this movie. Of course, King Vidor ends up marrying uh, Eleanor Boardman, who played a... Uh, Mary, or they were married beforehand. I'm not positive, but they they were married. Okay. So, all right. I think. All right. You want to move on? Let's move on to uh, Sunrise, a song of two humans, won the Academy Award for unique and artistic picture under dubious uh, situation, as I described earlier. Directed uh -huh. by F. W. Murnau. Nosferatu. Uh, Nosferatu. If, if if anyone has seen a silent film movie, I feel like that's probably the one. Yeah, definitely. You know that the that you viewers out there who have, if you've ever watched silent films, that's got to be in the top two or three, right? Sure. Yeah, definitely. What yeah. else would you even? Maybe Metropolis. Metropolis. Yeah. Nosferatu. That that's it. That's maybe some, maybe some Charlie Chaplin thing. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, or yeah, if you're on TikTok, you've seen a bunch of bits from Buster Keaton and stuff, but. So uh, 
Janet Gaynor plays the wife again. We saw her in Seventh Heaven. We know she won Best Actress. Yeah. Uh, the cinematographer, there were two cinematographers in this movie, Charles Rusher and Carl Strauss. They both won Academy Awards for cinematography for this movie. Five yeah. Oscar nominations, four wins. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's Murnau's first American movie, right? First American movie. They brought him over here. He's very popular. They started doing this with, you know, they end up doing this with Alfred Hitchcock uh, in, uh, by yep. 1940. Start exporting these people, talented directors over. I think they the studios realized kind of early on that directors, it was important to have good directors, like to have big name directors, you know, that that was maybe more important than the star. Well, the star, stars were important, but having the big name director was a thing. Probably earlier than most people recognize. Yeah. And uh, you can definitely see like the echoes, if again, I may use that word. From Nosferatu, which is the only Murnau movie I've seen other than this one. Um, yeah. In this movie, like there's like the use of shadow and the use of. Um, yeah, mostly the use of shadow and light. And, uh, you know, there was uh, the classic Murnau touch. OK, so at the start of the movie, there's the guy. I don't know who's he played by. Oh, yeah. Did I get into that? No, the uh, actors played by George O'Brien playing the man. Yeah, right. They don't have names, right? Yeah, they're supposed so, to be stand-ins, like every man, I guess, or stand Well, I, I don't want to stand in for this guy because he's a maniac. But yeah. like, uh, so he starts the movie and he's really furious that he's uh, in a relationship with this woman. Mm -hmm. uh, his I thought it was his wife at the beginning of the movie, but apparently that he's not. No, that is his wife. That's well, that his is his wife? Okay. So he doesn't, he's not happy with his wife, who is uh, probably 22, but looks like 58 years. They styled her in a way that she looks like, you know, someone from Little House on the Prairie. They gave yeah. her this, like, kind of like mother from Psycho, kind of like. Um, That's a good, good description, actually. A tied back, you know, hair and this kind of roughly dressed. And so he's furious about it with her. He wants to be with this uh, his mistress. This uh, again, woman from the city, woman. Right. There's this whole thing about the in all a lot of these movies. There's this thing about the people from the city versus people from the town and like what that represents, you know. And so she's from the city, and she's his mistress. And they come up with him and the man. Her and the man come up with this plan to murder his wife. And then they can sell the farm and move to the city. And so the man and their plan is, OK, we're going to row out. We're going to you're going to take your wife out on this boat and then you're going to drown her and then tip the boat over. And then you're going to float to safety on this bundle of reeds. Your mm. point. But. And so he's on this lake and he just looks like a murderer. Like she's like, even the whole time when they're on this date, he's just like furious and is like looking down. And then he's on the boat and he's furiously rowing. And his wife is like having a good time at first. But then she's like, well, he's behaving really strange. And then he stands up in the boat and like advances on her like, like a crazy person. Just like ugh. he's got like the hit. He's got yeah. the Stanley Kubrick look on his face, you know, like the head down, eyes up yeah. kind of look. And then he stops. He gets a change of heart. And then she, you know, apologizes to her. And then there's this long sequence of him following all over the town, kind of 
apologizing. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought about murdering. Uh, yeah, it's tough to get over. Yeah, and like, it, yeah, it, it's very tough to get. I would think that would be very be like a big sticking point in a relationship where you clearly tried to uh, bring it up constantly. Like, I, I know I would every little fight. You'd be like, well, you tried to murder me once. And then he like, there's a scene where he gives her a plate of sandwiches, and he's like, what about now? Are you happy now? You got all these sandwiches. And they do, and they don't. She doesn't actually forgive him until they go into a church and they see another a wedding ceremony taking place, and they're kind of moved by that expression of you know pure love or whatever. And then they get back together. Um, yeah. Well, so he says whole, something. The priest says something kind of creepy, like she is a uh, you know innocent, uh, she's unworldly girl, and you you need to protect her, kind of a thing. And then that makes him realize, like, oh, wow, I almost killed my wife. That's the opposite of what the priest is saying. And then he breaks right. crying in her lap. Oh, yeah, that's true. Is this the movie with the sequence where they're in the city, right? And then they make up, right? Right at that point, they kiss. And then they kind of walk into the distance. And they're like, the, the, the rural woods are kind of superimposed. And that becomes the city. That becomes, they, they, yeah. they're walking through the woods. And then they... It, it's like a, it's just a fantasy, and it cuts back to the city where they're holding up traffic with their. They're kissing. walking, and tr cars are going around them. Yeah, yeah, is that that's this movie, right? Yeah, that's this movie. I thought that was great. Really I cool. That looked awesome. Yeah. He's a he was a master of montage. You know the the German yeah. expressionism, like that was uh, his. What you know that was in his wheelhouse, a tool he uses a lot in this movie. You know, the scene where the, the, she's describing, the, the woman from the city is describing you're going to come to the city and it cuts to all these shots of the city and bands playing and then she's dancing like wildly, like in the swamp over it. Like that's oh, all. Yeah. This yeah, is, yeah. to me, this is like a vampire movie, but there's there's no vampire. Like, uh, you know, like, and then I was wondering, when did Frankenstein, like, so this is like a prototype, because he's a lot, a lot like Frankenstein. Who is? Uh, Michael Bryan, our... our or lead the man like the way he moves like you, you mean frankenstein's him. monster yeah like frankenstein's monster like the way he moves he had lead he had lead put into his shoes i read so that because Murnau wanted his walk to be this menacing slow oh, walk, wow. which is very much like frankenstein with the with the with the lead boots and the uh that kind of stilted pacing and then this thing with the hands frankenstein up. is 1931 31. So this is almost, you almost wonder, like, is there any kind of a connection? Is it the book was out before, way before then? But, you know, yeah, did, but the book, Frankenstein, Frankenstein in the book is very different than Frankenstein in the movie. So maybe Frankenstein, the movie, you know, had some of this. They saw some of this and were like, well, he's because he is very imposing. And the yeah. whole first part of the movie up until he goes to kill her is so suspenseful. Like, you're, you're like, oh, my God, this guy is going to murder her. His yeah. wife. Yeah. And it's the music is so like, you know, it's very suspenseful. Yeah, again, he doesn't deserve this woman at all, but the movie gives her, you know, she she really has no the wife really has no agency at all. She's either, you know, yeah, she's either being actively trying to murder her or he's being rude to her, or he's like he gives her the smallest token and she just like falls all over him, you know? And uh yeah, then they get See, this is the part where I thought they were getting married because then they go to this photographer 
and they have all these photos taken. And I'm like, oh, aren't these are these wedding photos? They're play acting. They're play acting like they just got remarried. Like this is oh, a- I see. It's kind of renewing of vows. I didn't yeah. get that at all. But then there's like so there's that scene which is very long. I I, I liked to- that scene. I thought that scene was hilarious with a. Uh, where they think they broke the statue and they do. Yeah, the- yeah. It's a weird little comic interlude where they broke the statue. They broke this photographer's like Grecan statue of a of a woman or something. And uh, the head falls off. And then um, he puts like a fruit on it or something. Like a, no, it's a little squeeze ball head on it. And uh, and that's the end of the scene. And then they and run. Then, the- follow- then there's another scene right after that where they're. They go to the circus or something like that. Do they go oh, to the circus? Before you, before you go, walk totally away from the fruit statue scene. Okay, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I have to mention that the music that they play over that scene is "Funeral March for Funeral." Hold on. Yeah, "Funeral March for a Marionette," which uh, is the music Alfred Hitchcock would later use for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Dun 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 dun, and. You know he saw Sunrise and probably loved F. Murnau was one of his uh, his heroes. Yeah, one of his idols, sure. So for sure that stuck in his head, this scene, uh, when he was doing that. But uh, continue. So yeah, they go to this crazy circus. Circus, and then they're having a good time, but then a pig gets away, and there's this long sequence of a, a pig getting away. And the, there's a very long shot of a pig drinking wine. And it just seems to be like a kind of a, a palate cleanser a little bit after all the murder, you know, that the first half of the movie, which is very dark. Yeah. The second half of the movie is very nice. Another question I had. Okay. So they make up, right. And they have this nice date at the circus where they, they chase a pig around or whatever. And then what's his name? Johnny. No, it's the man, the man, man. Uh, he uh, he says, oh, why don't we take a boat home? And the woman's like his the woman is his wife is like, yeah, sure. Like she wants to get on a boat already with this guy. Like he already tried to murder her. And then they're on this very long boat ride where she's happy. And then but then she falls asleep. It's very long. And then they get caught in a a, 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 a big storm. Um, and then basically the plot from the beginning, which was take her out to sea, drown her, and then float back in on the reeds. Is that what they, the reeds, I guess? Yeah, I guess that's why he needs to float back on the reeds. Yeah, the reed saves her. They end up saving her. So they end up coming back into play for the end of the movie. But the woman from the city thinks, oh, he went through with the plan and he's pulling it off believably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She thinks, oh, yeah, great. Our plan worked. And then she goes, she goes to the house to kind of hook up with the man, and the man like starts throttling. See, he like starts choking her, and like he has to be pulled off her. Choking's his main. Uh... Yeah, that's his main uh, kind of uh, response to a lot of things. Um, Although they have that weird scene early on in the uh, where there's a man hitting on his wife in the barber shop, and uh, he, while he's getting a hot shave. Yeah, that's a very weird scene. And then, you know, it, it ends with this menacing, like he pulls a knife out. Like he's a knife out of nowhere. And then he like basically almost stabs the guy. Never stuff. referenced again. I mean, I guess it's like part of his character. 
But again, he I almost murders people. Yeah. Part of your, you mean like he literally almost stabs this guy for like really almost. I mean, he's like hitting on his wife, I guess, but he was being aggressive with his hitting on. It's never referenced again. And you, I feel like you're supposed to like this guy, you know, at least, uh, you know, you're supposed to want them to be together. Yeah. And I don't know if I want them to be together. I feel like that's a bad move for the woman. Yeah, it's a hard. It's hard to get over almost being murdered. How do yeah. you trust him? And on top of it, he's like a dick. He's cheating on her. Also, on top of murdering, and it's an open secret because people in town, like, oh, know. everybody knows. Like, she, the wife, knows at the beginning of the movie that he's going off to see yeah. his mistress, and she's like, oh, it used to be so great at the beginning of our marriage when he didn't cheat on me. I think the thing with this movie is you got to look beyond the uh, the story a little bit because it, I think this movie is all in every shot, everything you look at in this movie is curated in such an interesting way. Like the shadows, the sets, like the village that they're in, you know, the rooms and all the weird forced perspectives in in there, you know, the, the, just in the room where she's making the soup at the beginning like the table's all kind of large in the foreground there's nothing on the walls in the background it's it's just such a everything's meant to draw your eye in particular directions and it feels very like a dream kind of at like the it's all mood really right this movie yeah if you if you lock in on that story yeah it's hard to yeah yeah you're right you're right yeah the well, sunrise hey, song... hey, yeah a song of two humans, but it's 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 not. Yeah, they're not stand-ins for you and I because we're not almost ready to murder someone constantly. That title, I don't. I mean, a song of two humans. That seems very uh, yeah contentious. But yeah, and then then at the end, the wife finally lets her hair down, and we realize that you know how beautiful she is. I suggest, and he's like, "Oh, the sun is coming up," and. I mean, he's just going to cheat on her again, though. I mean, yeah, five, four years later, some, you know, the tourists come every season, I guess, is what they said at the beginning of the movie. Right, right. From the city. Again, the, the that city. corrupting city. The city corrupts. Yeah. The, 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 the town or the village is the pure uh, goodness. Yeah, I just, I, th- I think this movie just in, in looks, it, it feels like an artistic achievement. And there's, I'm sure there's a lot of shots I'm not even thinking about right now that i should yeah no um i can just just th- think of that scene where he's on the boat and advancing on her that's a really um it was a, it. yeah it was a it was an interesting movie and and uh despite the kind of whatever kind of problematic relationship you know i i found it to be interesting all right are you glad you watched all these movies i'm going to send us back to uh Back to not sharing screen. Hey, we're back, everybody. Welcome hey, uh, to the end of Golden Boy. We're a lot sweatier. It's very hot where did I am. Did we not record any of that we just talked about? Did we? No, we did. Just uh, if you were our YouTube uh, viewers, you were looking at images of posters and other fun uh, things. Oh, I see. Okay. There. And if you are our podcast listener, then you this is you're just like, but yeah, you're just still talking. You're just still talking uh yeah so yes i am to answer your question i am basically glad that you strong-armed me into watching these movies and basically took my uh 
casual mention that I'd like to be on this show as a serious thing and made me uh, your first guest. And I, I did, I did enjoy, I kind of went into it like, like homework a little bit, but I did end up really um, enjoying the process. Yeah. No, me too. I think there's just, the more you, you go into this and you, if you just do this on your own and you're just like, I'm going to watch old movies, you're watching an old movie at home and then you're, you know, you're not going to go to work and start telling people, hey, I watched Sunrise, Song of Two Humans. People are going to be like, what? You know, no one cares. So I, I like the idea of these, that doing this. And then for me, listening to other podcasters and seeing the excitement of other people into these movies and genre. And because I'll stay following them as well. I just think, you know, this isn't for everybody. I don't think everyone's going to want to go back and watch these eight movies. And I, I think at the end of these eight, how many would you even recommend to a casual person? A casual person? Yeah. If you're at a bar and someone's like, oh, yeah, you watched all those Oscar movies. Uh, any of those worth watching? What, would what you kind say? of bar? What? But who's asking? Uh, oh, yeah. I forgot. Since you stopped smoking your pipe and drinking you don't go to I, don't, I don't i don't associate you're in the library and you're oh, i'm in the library okay and i'm being in the library is that what's going on yeah you're in the library and drunk, uh, in, the, drunk in the stacks and someone says comes up to me and i'm like you haven't watched all the movies from 1929 well okay i would recommend uh yeah i'd say three yeah all right i'm probably pretty close i'm i'm probably at maybe four yeah all right. Um, all right, everybody, we are at the end. So those of you who skipped to the end and wanted to know the results, we're here. We're doing it. Ooh. So since this is a unique Oscars, 1929, and we're dealing with two different categories, let me start by asking you, outstanding, uh, best outstanding movie between The Wings, Racket, and Seventh Heaven, who gets the Golden Boy? Just those three movies. Uh, I'd give it to Wings. I would also give it to Wings. Right. Best unique and artistic movie uh, between Sunrise, The Crowd, and Chang. Who wins the Golden Boy? Chang. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's The Crowd. That would be shocking. No, it's The Crowd. It's The Crowd. All right. So now we're between, uh, and I agree with you on that one as well. I think The Crowd got ripped off by Sunrise in that situation. Mm-hmm. All righty, so we are about to reveal our the first 1929 Academy Awards, and the best picture goes to, uh, hold it up, and reveal. Look at that. The crowd. And the first ever Golden Boy for best picture goes to The Crowd by King Vidor. A Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer picture starring James Murray and Eleanor Boardman. Suck it, Louis B. Your toilet movie is the best picture of 1929. The crowd. That's the that's the movie head and shoulders above every other movie. I, I totally agree. I think that movie, especially the fact that it's unable to be watched. Like those, those the two facts. The one that Louis B. Mayer stepped in, put his thumb on it, and stole the unique picture from it. And second, that's just not available anywhere. And that no I'm one... really, like I said, I there should be a criterion for this. 
Did they I, do that for any of King Vidor's movie, other movies? No, it's King Vidor is like, this guy is, I had no idea. I thought he was a king. I'm watching the movie. I'm like, is this guy like a king of another country or something? Like, what yeah. a weird name. His actual first name is King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I bought this book on the crowd, which you can see up above me, just because it's literally like the only source really? of information. Like, let me bring her down for the people at home to see. King Vidor is the crowd, the making of a silent classic. Yeah, so, but it's not they people, it's not seen as a classic. It's a completely it's seen as a classic by the niche of people who love silent film, like the people from who are like experts in this area. You know, this is what I've learned. Like people will say the crowd is a, it's a movie that should be brought back. And it is criminal that it hasn't been at this point. Yeah. When considering, I mean, it makes sense why Charlie Chaplin would be. Charlie Chaplin was my that those were the two movies for me that I was juggling. Okay. I felt like this I love the gold rush. And what's funny is when they had the original 1929 Oscars and people were writing in what movies should get nominated, they were taking questions from people. I get. I don't know if it's just from the '36, but they were submitting the Gold Rush to be nominated. That movie came out in 1925 because they didn't understand. No, it's just going to be like the last year, like not just any movie you can think of gets nominated. Well, wasn't this 29 ceremony for 1927 and 1928 though? It was for yeah, two. It was August 1st, 1927, until the last day of July, 1928. Okay, and then those were the movies that were nominated. And I think, you know, the person, the politician in me would be like, you know, because maybe this is one of Charlie Chaplin's last shots. I would be like the the uh, circus deserves the award. It's a it's a silent era film that if I were going to recommend to a coworker, you don't have to know anything going into that. I think recommending the crowd to a coworker, you know, crowd is. It's it's like you don't always recommend maybe a David Lynch movie. I love David Lynch, but a lot of people I work with are are just they're gonna sure. turn, Lost Highway just turned it off after five minutes, and the crowd probably the same. But I the crowd is just we went on about it, and I could already tell from within like a minute of you going, I'm like, oh, he's picking the crowd for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, I was just watching it. I'm like, this is my best. I mean, I don't know. But I mean, like, this is, I just really, really responded to it. And I would definitely recommend The Circus just because it's Charlie Chaplin. It's a familiar, uh, you know, s- scenario. And it's only an hour long. Yeah, it's, so it's, uh, it's a short one. The buy-in is uh, not as, I mean, how long was the crowd, though? The crowd was. I feel like the crowd was like. Two and a half hours or something. I don't think it was. Maybe it was just under two, something like that. And that's the sad thing, too. We, we The one we watched was from the Internet Archive. So this isn't even like a fully restored crowd. No, it you looks know, like this crap. Is... Looks like yeah. total... So I guess that's it. Well, all right, Cyrus, thank you for being the first guest on the show. Hey, Kenny, no, thank you for having me. It was a, a lot of fun. I really had a good time. And thank you for making me watch these movies because I think... It just like gives me a little perspective on, you know, a bygone time. A bygone era. Yep. All right. And to all of our listener, listeners at home and uh, away from home, mm-hmm. our, uh, our next episode will appear on August 1st. Uh, we're trying to do these every month on the first of the month. We will have a different host. Uh, I know. So I'm sorry, Cyrus. 
Sarge might be back at some point, though. Uh, yeah, maybe. Well, maybe once we get to 1982, I'll, I'll come in. Yeah. Well, once we hit those 60s and sweet 60s, 70s... Uh, we'll all be, uh, <laughs> we'll be like 60, 60 years old. Yeah. We'll be uh, much older. Uh, yeah. Thanks for coming. Uh, and uh, we'll see you at the next Golden Boys. All right. Keep those Golden Boys polished. That's the, that's the main saying. We use... Keep those golden boys polished. Hey everyone, thanks for watching the first episode of Golden Boy. I know it's a very long video, but we only put out one video per month. So if they run a little bit long, I don't think that's as big a deal. Uh, just listen to it while you're doing dishes and laundry and whatnot. There'll be another one in a month. Unless you get lucky and there's a Hitchcock episode, which uh, there's, spoiler alert, there won't be one next month. In the meantime, if you could hit like and subscribe at the bottom of the video, I hate asking, but I was told that if I don't, nobody will. So that's what I'm here for. Second of all, our second episode coming on August 1st of this year will be the 1930 Academy Awards. For the, So if any of you that want to play along with us and watch the movies, there are four movies that are nominated for Best Picture that are available. The fifth one is a lost movie. So we will be reviewing the Broadway Melody, Alibi, in old Arizona and the Hollywood review. And we will be talking about the Patriot trailer. We will also, as a, just because it's going to be a shorter episode, throw in the movie coquette and have a bit of a discussion about uh, what makes for a best actor, actress. So that's it. Join us next time. Thanks again for liking this video.